Welcome to Jodowowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, mime, painter, and so much more, including director Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and on this episode, we're looking at Jodorowsky's triumphant return to filmmaking after nearly a decade hiatus. It's the surreal horror of 1989's Santa Sangre. Joining me on this filmic journey are two wonderful co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord Podcast. It's the Alma to my Phoenix, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I like that I'm the Alma. That's yeah, that's you nice. certainly are. Yeah, I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Good, good. I liked I liked Alma. She seemed cool. <laughs> Liam, how are you doing? And how's the world? How's your world uh, so far in the year 2022? Uh, had a pretty terrible week, but uh, sure. it's really nice out today, and that always puts me in a better mood. Uh, but you know, I I got to watch not only Santa Sangre but supplemental materials to Santa Sangre, so that's always going to put me in a good mood. Liam, do you feel a little more comfortable now that we're mm. back to talking about a movie as opposed to the comics work that we covered on mm. our most recent episode? Simply because on a lot of our podcasts together, in fact, all of them, we focus on film instead of, you know, all these other mediums. Is this something a little more comfortable for you to talk about? I don't think so. I feel pretty okay. I, I mean, I'll be straight up. I learned a chunk talking about comics on our brief uh, comics podcast, the, uh, sure. the flight stuff, yeah. uh, simply because of some of the ways that you and Adriana would discuss the comics forced me to think more about that. I, I tend to respond to art almost entirely emotionally. I like it. Sure. I don't like it. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the construction of it, but in comics, the construction of the art is not just an aesthetic choice. And, and that's true in other forms of art too, but specifically in comics, it is a narrative choice and a creative choice. And there's a lot of other elements going in. And I hadn't thought about that stuff as concretely until you two brought it up on that show. And now I feel pretty comfortable discussing that. Now I'm still no expert. I don't, you know, I don't have like the deeper knowledge of how some of these things are put together, but I at least have an understanding of like the basic mechanics and, and how I think it works. Liam, uh, this is a Doug Tilly original. The medium is the message. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> totally something you made up and not another brilliant Canadian that you're taking credit for. <laughs> he stole my idea. With us, as always, on Jodowalski is the wonderful writer director, Julia Marchesi. Julia, how are you doing today? I, I am doing good. I just wonder which character from this film I get to be. Oh, that's a good Alman question. Phoenix, who, who am I? Ooh, I mean, I don't want to paint with no. too broad a brush. Um, you know, Concha, until the second half of the movie, and we find out there are extenuating circumstances around that, seems pretty terrific to me. How, how really? do you feel about being <laughs> like Concha? a religious zealot? That's why I get to be. <laughs> I'd rather be the tattooed woman if we're talking about <laughs> which one, really. Um, hello, I'm happy to be here, as always, on, on Joe Dawowski. It's so great to have you here, Julia, because we're going to be talking today about the film Santa Sangre from 1989. You know, I don't have it in the show notes, so this might take you a little bit by surprise, but I want to start today by asking you, what was your first experience with Santa Sangre? Uh, I saw it at the New Beverly and loved it, um, and then immediately went home for Christmas and showed it to my parents. Um, and we've actually watched quite a bit of Jodorowsky around Christmas, <laughs> coming to think of it, because we watched Holy Mountain uh, year before last. Uh, and my parents really like it. They think he's, you know, they and they understand there's some bits, you know, uh, that are a little dicey, but they, you know, they get that my parents are art appreciators, right? So they right. understand, they see that he's a brilliant artist. Um, so I've always, you know, for me in my head, it had always been the big three, right? It had been El Topo, El Holy Mountain, and this one. 
But then when uh, his new ones came out, the autobiography, Dance of Reality and Endless Poetry, I'm like, now there's five. Like those Mm. two are just on the level for these. So I'm so excited to get to those because we also have wonderful, wonderful, wonderful performances by Jodorowsky Sons, um, which we will get today as well. So there's nothing that delights me more than watching his sons act because they are superb. Yeah, we're going to get our our first real look at the extended Jodorowsky family uh, on this episode today. That's really interesting to hear, by the way. I'm just thinking about what it would be like to show my mother Santa Sangre. Oh, yeah. How would would she react? Uh, She would be horrified, uh, both at the movie and her son for showing her it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it necessarily would be... uh, I think it's just outside of her experience of watching Call the Midwife and... Hmm. that's pretty much it for the past several years. I don't think she has Liam, a lot of experience. Liam, how would your mom like it? <laughs> she is uh, extremely squeamish when it comes to violence, mm. you know? Uh, but the fact that it's weird wouldn't really bum her out. I mean, I was probably far too young when uh, her boyfriend, now my stepdad, showed me a racer head. So I don't Whoa. think weirdness is like a factor. Um, but I do think she would... She is... Uh, in the last few years, for understandable reasons, become very sensitive to anything she interprets as uh, as misogyny. Sure. So I think for her, seeing the complexity in it would be difficult. She's just mostly, everything is man shit, and she's so sick of man shit. And so uh, she's been very critical lately. Uh, but it, when I was younger and I first discovered this movie, I think she would have thought it was fine. Um, she certainly wouldn't have been turned off by how strange it is because she's shown me all manner of, of strange things, although not always as a as an appreciator, just because it, she had heard it was good. And then we'll watch it. And then she'll be like, that was too weird for me. But the weirdness <laughs> isn't a turnoff. She's not offended at the weirdness. It's just something she, she's exposed to because she, before she had me, was committed to the life of an artist. She was a very uh, uh, committed artist who only worked normal jobs to pay the bills and it was only once i was born that she kind of gave up her art and started actually like having a career and doing mom stuff you know it really is amazing how different our families are of course that's the case i think with a lot of families but i i guess I, i come from such a normie background in such a lot of in a lot of ways you know i mean the idea of a parent showing me a racer head is like beyond the pale for my my childhood and growing up me finding it that's a little bit more uh, believable. Liam, when was the first time that you encountered Santa Sangre? You know, I thought I had seen it before his other movies, but I don't think that's actually true. I think I discovered it sort of because I knew people who liked it and only in watching it realized it was this this person who I only knew because of Holy Mountain. You know? Sure. Um, and, and really, we've talked about this when we first started this podcast. For a long time, you know, Holy Mountain was it. Like, I didn't really think about his comics or his other movies. It was just, there was the Holy Mountain. It was made by this crazy man. That's it. And uh, it's only later that I realized, like, oh, there's other movies. And they're, you know, until the most recent films, really hard to find a lot of these movies. Absolutely. uh, I just hadn't gotten a chance to see them. Uh, But Santa Sangre was everywhere. I mean, I think the the, it's sort of ironic that now that it has... um, this new uh, version, like there's a new Blu-ray, you know, a new sure. whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it just screened it, here in LA as well, the new 4K restaurant. Yeah, uh, but, but, but you know, Doug, you would know more than me. Is it streaming anywhere right now? Uh, I don't know if it was streaming on Shutter, but... Uh, but it's, I, it is streaming. 
Oh, it is currently uh, streaming on Shutter. Okay, cool, 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 cool. I thought it was so strange that the documentary that we're going to talk about a little later, that's streaming on the Tubi streaming service yeah. just by itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I watched it there because I couldn't get the copy you sent me to work, so I watched it oh, okay. on Tubi. Uh, but uh, yeah, for for me, um, did you watch that? Did you watch this with ads? I did watch it with ads. Yeah, that's the saddest thing I've ever fucking heard, man. That's <laughs> I, I, hey, man. That here's takes the away thing. from the, the movie so fucking hard. Uh, no, just the documentary. I didn't watch Santa Sangre with it. Okay, okay. That's no, no, still, no, 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 it's no. still not good. But if it was Santa Sangre, that would be like... Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I can't... I, and this is just my bias. For a lot of documentaries, unless they're at some other level, I don't mind watching them with ads. Uh, but regular movies... Like, I know a lot of people who, because Tubi has such a deep, interesting catalog, they watch Tubi all the time. They love Tubi. And and I know Doug, you're a fan of Tubi. For me, the ads really do fuck me up. Like, and I and I hate that I'm so sensitive about it. But like, if I'm really into a movie and then that ad break comes up, I'll just be like, "Fuck this," and I'll stop watching the movie because I just can't. It just bums me out. Uh, what I was gonna say though is, for a long time, Santa Sangre was streaming everywhere. Like, it was just like. Sure. I, I feel like every channel had 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 a thing of it, but now with the new restoration, and I'm glad to hear that it is on Shutter. I it wasn't as obviously available as I thought it would be. I thought with this new uh, restoration, you'd be able to find that specifically that restoration all over the various streaming channels, and I, I didn't encounter that. But you know, I did have a copy, so I just watched that. So yeah. Although I did you know, discover that that box that I bought, I thought that had Santa Santa Sangre in it, and it does not. So <laughs> I was like, "Well, guess I'm buying a Blu-ray." When I was getting into cult and horror movies in the 1990s, this was the only Jodorowsky film that was generally available. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, you weren't going to again. We as we've talked about in previous episodes, El Topo and the Holy Mountain were not commonly available, uh, really at all. Uh, Tusk <laughs> even now isn't very available. So if you wanted to experience Jodorowsky, that was the one that people talked about. It was the one that uh, if you went to like the video search of Miami guides, which is the the sort of thing that I would just read through endlessly. These guides to cult movie distributors like i remember reading about it far before i ever saw it and seeing it i was like wow this is amazing it can't get any weirder than this <laughs> boy was i to be surprised in the future <laughs> but um but yeah so t for a very long time this was my only experience with alejandro jodorowsky so it's interesting coming at it now going chronologically seeing where he had come from and that in some ways this is a lot more mainstream of a version of his vision to a certain extent but we'll get into that when we talk about the movie proper i did want to say this uh, this might be a, somewhat of a tangent um i recently was watching a documentary on the film alien and it prompted a question that I just wanted to get your perspective on before we get into some of the recent Jodorowsky news. We've discussed, it's one of the most common things discussed about the Jodorowsky's Dune project. Uh, and one of the things that the documentary ends on, that the work that went into that doc, sorry, the work that went into that film ended up inspiring any number of movies. But the movie it most directly inspired, likely, was Ridley Scott's Alien. And Alien, of course, not only was written by Daniel Bannon, who worked on the Jodorowsky's Dune script, but also involved H.R. Giger and some of the concept art. Uh, you know, it, it, there seemed to be a lot of DNA that came from that Dune project. One of the things I wanted to ask the two of you is something that I didn't hear discussed before. You have Dan O'Bannon. He already had this alien concept in his mind in some capacity. If when the Dune project fell apart, he went up to Jodorowsky and said, you know, I have this other concept that maybe we can make. It wouldn't cost nearly as much as, uh, as the Dune project. It's about an alien. What do you think 
that an Alejandro Jodorowsky version of Alien might look like? I'm just going to throw that over to you first, Julie. Is that something that you can even visualize in your brain? Yeah, I can actually, because um, mm-hmm. I feel like Dan O'Bannon might have done that. I think. It's, yeah, that's. It, it, I was. That's in what, the realm of possibility. To sure, he present that script if he had it. Um, I just. I feel like it wouldn't be so different, honestly, because you have the same creature design, right? Yeah. So that's going to be there. So the look of the film is probably going to be very similar, and it's just going to be different in content. And if you already have the script, it's not like you could stray too far from it, right? So you're, it's just literally his direction. Um, Though they do say that the Dan O'Bannon script was reworked, you know, pretty significantly. And I'm sure if Jodorowsky had taken it on, they would they would rework it. And I, I, the <laughs> thing that I think would be different, and I think there would he would get the, some sort of spiritual element in there. Yeah. It would be something, you know, the aliens are gods or, you know, this is something they can learn to get to an enlightenment or that kind of thing. I think that would be the biggest difference. Probably like less violence, more spiritualism would be my guess. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it certainly seems like the direction that he was most interested at that time period. And if he was going to work some of those Dune themes into it, I think that makes a lot of sense. How about you, Liam? Any thoughts on what a Alejandro Jodorowsky alien might look like? I mean, it's a little hard for me because I'm one of those people uh, who's convinced that Alien is basically a perfect movie. Sure. And so like when I start to think about the changes that Jodorowsky would make, I'm kind of like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um that being said, I, I mean, I'm a little skeptical, actually. My thought is, and you know, I could totally be wrong about this, but it seems like O'Bannon was not a big fan of the ways that his script was changed to make the final product, you know? Sure. So I wonder, A, to what extent the thing that I love is not his vision. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have no idea. And B, you know, working with Yurowski and seeing the kind of director that Yodorowsky was, I'm not convinced he'd want to hand this thing to this guy, this like this like amazing genius who seems to move heaven and earth to get his way. I don't know that he'd be like, sure, this guy will take my idea and, and listen to my thoughts and take my advice. Like I, He might have been afraid to share it. I, I, I don't know. All I, all I know is it certainly would be, a, I think, actually a different movie in a lot of ways. Um but again, so much of that movie is, as Julia pointed out, the creature design, and that would have, assuming that uh, that that Giger and and Yodorowsky continued to work together, I assume a lot of those designs would have been the same, and a lot of the ways that it worked would have been the same. It, in some ways, they might have gotten more. Uh, probably not, though. After Dune didn't work out, I don't know how much money was flowing for, for Jodorowsky, but assuming they got the same budget, I, I, I'm i sure there would have been similarities, but I, I just wonder if it would have been essentially a different film, especially because we just watched uh, Jodorowsky's one sh- you know, more horror film, and it's certainly different than other horror films. You know what I'm saying? I don't, this is so funny because I don't think of Santa Sangre as a horror film at all. Right. It's it's just as horror like all of his movies have horrific elements and this doesn't feel any less or more horrific than any of them. So when it's when we're like oh it's a horror movie I'm like is it? I guess I so. Think, I think People because it was designed as it, a horror but, film first that I mean you because, have the Argento connection but I feel like this to me just isn't a horror. It doesn't strike to, me as horror. See, film. but to me like, I think I wouldn't it, cover it on horror movie survival guide and, and but like should I now? I'm like could I? I guess I could. People I mean killed. I I think it is a horror film in the sense that this is Jodorowsky's take I mean by his own claims it's his take on on slashers the the choices about even the soundtrack were you know he wanted something that felt like 
a mashup of different horror themes. Like at the very least, he's thinking about horror as it exists uh, when he's making this movie. Now, do I think it fits if someone has a strict definition of what horror is? This is way outside of it. Like I'm more than willing to accept in a lot of ways this isn't a horror film. But I think about intention. I think he was trying to make a horror film with this movie and then also wanting to do what he wanted to do. Uh, but then that makes me even more think that, well, why would that be different with Alien? I think Alien might then be an entirely different movie if he if he took charge of it. And it might feel more like this movie, honestly. Well, what would Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dead and Buried look like? Or Alejandro Jodorowsky's <laughs> Return of the Living Dead look like? But you know, the great thing about it is, though, gentlemen, there's an alternate timeline where all of those movies exist. Yes, right? yes. Bring so, me to that timeline right now, please. I would like to watch all... Any time, I, in fact, I would like to go to any timeline where they let him make Dune and then mm. he just had money turned on. I mean, it's possible he made Dune and it failed. But assuming that's not the timeline we're going to, I just want to see a world where Jodorowsky just had money coming at him and he could do whatever he wanted. I yeah. just think that would be – because it's not impossible, right? A lot of weirdos had the money font turned on for them. Not all of them, but a lot of weirdos did. So the idea that, well, Jodorowsky's too out there. It could never happen. It's just fate. I don't think it has anything to do with just he's the one that could never happen. You know, people made decisions. And in a different universe, he had his movies funded. And those movies are probably fucking insane. Yeah, of course. Because, like, in the alternate universe, you have Joe Rasky's Dune becomes Star Wars. becomes that. Right. 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 And it's at the level where Star Wars is now. And you're like, what is that world? Fuck yeah. I I also think that it's an interesting thing to talk about now because Santa Sangre was a critical success and and presumably a financial success as well that led to a little more freedom and then that led to another film that he disowned but that's something that we'll talk about likely on the uh, the next episode in fact certainly before we get into talking about Santa Sangre in any detail I wanted to go through a few Jodorowsky related announcements and this first one really took me by surprise uh, Kadabra Records issuing the soundtrack album to a comic by Alejandro Jodorowsky and Mobius on the most recent episode of Jodorowsky we talked about the eyes of the cat really the first major collaboration between Mobius and Jodorowsky. Um, I almost said Jodorowsky. <laughs> I do that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but their first collaboration, you know, a very well-known uh, well and well-respected comic. Well, over the last, I guess, few months, the great uh, composer, Fabio Frizi, best known for his collaborations with Lucio Fulci, the horror director, he was creating a soundtrack for the comic. Something that I never even knew that you could do necessarily. So uh, this is uh, the, the work is already available through Kadabra Records. In fact, if you uh, scroll down there, you can see the black and yellow splattered yes, vinyl. Scroll down. <laughs> <laughs> but this black and yellow uh, splattered vinyl to uh, recreate sort of the look of the uh, the art from the comic itself. Uh, I'm a big Fabio Frizzi fan. In fact, uh, even his most recent work that we've seen in in, in some uh, Western films, I've really, really enjoyed. Um, and I'm a huge, huge fan of his work specifically with Lucio Fulci and specifically in that, his soundtrack to The Beyond. It does seem like an interesting mix. I had no idea that Fabio Frizzi had any interest in this sort of work. Uh, so when it was announced, I was like, what? This I have to listen to and listen to. We did. I had uh, both of you uh, listen to one of the tracks that's currently available on SoundCloud uh, called The Cat. I thought it was appropriate considering the material. Starting with you, Julia, what did you think? And what do you think of this concept? I think it's amazing. I think yeah. it, this, it was really, I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't know who this uh, composer was before this. Uh, although I have seen Fulci movies, but I guess I um, am... Uh, 
lame. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> searching for word in brain, lame was first to come. <laughs> uh, I know listeners can't, you can't see this, uh, this vinyl we're looking at, but if you can look it up online because it's really, really gorgeous. And I'm a vinyl lover and collector myself. So it uh, warms the heartstrings. It's interesting because I, this comic is so short. Yeah. right? It's only a few panels. And so I'm like, okay, that's very interesting that you would choose this. Like, like, oh, if you were going to score the incal, like, I'm like, okay, there you go, right? Like you mm -hmm. have pages and pages and pages to do a whole thing. But this is something you and it's also you're scoring something. How do you know which panel to look at when, right? That's like, I've never thought of scoring a book, right? Like, mm -hmm. like, I'm going to score Stephen King's misery. And you're like, okay, and there's like certain points where you're supposed to be, be reading, and there would be music that would accompany that feeling of that passage. But how do you orchestrate that does that make any sense sure absolutely yeah especially and then because it isn't the same as scoring a film where you i mean i don't even know if fabio frizzi had any direct contact with jodorowsky in regards to this project so you know the idea of then you know it really does come from your imagination what would this sound like and it's also do you listen to it while because the other thing and this is something that listeners of the show already know eyes of the cat doesn't have any dialogue right so it's it's an entirely visual comic so are you supposed to, you know would he want you to to read along or, or view along while you're listening to it there's a lot of different ways and a lot of questions i have in regards to it but i do think it's a fascinating idea and just the idea that these two realms of interest that i have uh with fabio frizzi being involved here i just thought it was really fascinating liam i, I think that you are already you're you're quite a fan of fabio frizzi's work yeah i would say that's fair although you know i saw him live and yes. he scored more of Fulci's movies than I've seen. You mm. know, there were moments where he's like, and this is another Fulci classic. And I'm like, don't even know what that fucking movie is, actually. <laughs> uh, and and I've, I've talked about, we talked about this on uh, Wild in the Streets when we covered... Um, Contraband. Contraband. I'm, I am... I am, as far as America goes, a Fulci fan. As far as uh, Italy goes, I am a Fulci poser because he did a, a broad variety of films, and I'm mostly familiar with the horror films. And oh, I have certainly. not yeah, yeah, been yeah. able to check out the other films. But, full, uh, but so, uh, so when are you doing your Fulci fucking podcast then? I know. We really should. <laughs> Although mean, then, you, then you get to go through it like this academically, right? Like a really yeah, study. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, I've heard from people more in the know than I am that some of those movies are very bad. But still, it could be fun to do anyway. Uh, but yeah, so when I saw Fabio Fritzi live, he uh, he played songs from movies I didn't even know existed. And that was a weird experience to be like, oh, wow, I need to do more research and see what I can find. That being said, uh, I, am, I am into this project purely because of the music. I feel like the comic is too short for a soundtrack on like a, mm. a viable level right. uh, in the sense that I, I know it sounds crazy, but I could actually see doing a soundtrack to something you're supposed to read with the idea of like, we don't know how fast everyone reads, but this is sort of a general pace that could work. Sure. And I'm like, uh, I pretty much finished uh, the eyes of the cat uh, in, in like, <laughs> you know, five minutes. So if there's more than a song, then it's not really for the book. I mean, unless I'm just supposed to keep rereading it while the music plays. If, if it feels like that 
it's like I like the concept, but it's it's certainly not like a, a like a practical play along. And I and and that might seem like a weird concern to have. Only I have that because I have a friend who did it. Uh, I'm friends with uh, Pat Kinlan of Self Defense Family and Drug Church, and Self Defense Family wrote a soundtrack for one of Pat's comics. His he I mean his life is grand, right? He has two bands, but his day job is he writes for comic books. So like, <laughs> in other words, he has no adult job, and he has a podcast that's very popular. Sounds um, unfair. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he he literally wrote a comic with his band in mind, and then they concocted a soundtrack together that you literally comes with the comic that you're meant to right. listen to. Mm-hmm. While you read the comic, I think that's a more literal version. I bet that the makers of this, you know, that this was not no one involved in this, Fritzi or any of the producers or record company. No one really thinks like this is how long it's going to take you to read the comic. Right, it's right, more right, of a right. conceptual thing. Uh, but it, it, you know, there is a part of me that's like, but it'd be cool if it. I want Fritzi to do a soundtrack for a comic that I'm actually going to listen to it while I read the comic. I just think that would be so fucking cool because, like, honestly, Fabio Fritzi's. I don't have a lot of it, but I have some of his music on vinyl. That's perfect reading music. I'll put that shit on and read a book, and it just it goes together magically, and not just because it fits the book, just as something to have on. In the background, it's just like it's some of my favorite background music for anything. It just puts me in a good, I mean, maybe not good, puts me in a relaxed mood, sometimes a dark mood, depending on what it is. But that's okay. I kind of like that, you know. What What did you think of this track specifically? I thought it was good. I, I mean, I definitely like uh, the song. I just, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I probably would. If I saw this at a record store, I would buy this. But some part of me would think, well, it's funny that I'm buying this because I'm definitely not going to use it as a soundtrack. But I think, <laughs> I think it's like, it, it's again, it's Fabio Fritzi. Like I, 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 I haven't heard everything he's done, but everything I've heard he's done, even for like, you know, he played songs that were for like comedies and westerns and stuff. Sure, all all good. Everything he does is good. You know, even when it's something that I don't, it's not like my genre of music per se. You know, doesn't matter. I just everything he does. So that I've heard, I like. Uh, I, you know, for someone who's been around as long as him, there's probably something somewhere that didn't work out. But uh, <laughs> but what I've heard, I think, is all magical. I just think he's he's an amazing composer. You know, uh, Julie, how about yourself? Any specific thoughts about the song, uh, the cat? I th- I thought it was great. <laughs> I, I don't know. I got. The, I I liked it. <laughs> Two thumbs up from Miss Marquesi. I'm I'm not like I I'm not really I like I mean obviously I'm a big music fan but I, in terms of being able to verbalize the things about it I know that that Frizzy does a lot of you know synth work and uh, one of the things I like most about his work is how kind of apocalyptic it sounds this isn't really in that vein but I like that there's kind of that you know slap bass and acoustic uh, that guitar stuff in it along with all the synth I, it's a really fun uh, listen and I'll put a little bit of the audio here. So people can listen to that and uh, and check it out themselves. Uh, I'll also link in the show notes where people can check out that vinyl. On the Alejandro Jodorowsky uh, Instagram page, he recently uh, put up something. I know it's weird to even say. I'm sorry. Every time it makes me laugh. I can't believe he has an Instagram. Instagram. <laughs> his whole family does. All right. His, I know. His, oh, I follow it, it, them all. It's amazing. Uh, He recently posted something that was a little concerning, which is about Jean-Pierre Vigneault, who uh, you may remember from the Jodorowsky's Dune documentary. He was the person who trained with uh, Brontus Jodorowsky uh, when he was getting prepared to play the lead in the Dune film, uh, kind of a world-famous and well-respected martial artist in France. Uh, He... um, 
his his dojo, I suppose, is uh his his area where he works on his martial arts was under threat of eviction recently, and Jodorowsky put a link where people can uh, help to, I guess, do some fundraising in regards to it. Uh, I actually checked out that link. It doesn't seem to be up anymore. I hope that's actually good news in regards to it. I could not find any further information regarding whether that eviction is still likely to take place. Uh, This is an older gentleman, obviously, and someone who's been working in martial arts for many, many decades. I did find an article, a French article that I translated, so of course you have to take the details with a grain of salt, that really suggested that Jean-Pierre Vignon has so much respect for Jodorowsky. I think he even has a mural of Jodorowsky in the dojo itself. So, I mean, this is a, obviously Jodorowsky has a really strong connection uh, with him and hopefully wishing uh, wishing Jean-Pierre Vignon all the best in regards to this. Uh, there was an, another recent uh, Jodorowsky uh, image that sort of made a splash online. This was a picture of Jodorowsky sitting with the famous comic book artist and writer Frank Miller, probably best known for works like The Dark Knight Returns and 300, uh, as well as directing The Spirit and also Sin City, of course. Uh, no one really knows if, actually, I don't even know if this is necessarily a recent image, though I did see some news articles that suggested that it was, uh, but it really spurred a lot of of conversation about whether they may, there may be a collaboration between the two. Uh, it is a great. kind of a striking, so, sorry, what was that, Julia? That would be great. Sorry, be... bust in. I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder what kind of form that might take, you know, because, you know, I guess it would be maybe Jodorowsky. He hasn't written any comic work for a little while, as far as I know, but it would be very interesting to see a Frank Miller illustrated version. And uh, And considering some of the subject matter Frank Miller has been writing in the last while, I would certainly be more interested, I think, in a Jodorowsky written work uh, featuring Frank Miller's art. Uh, Snap. J- j- yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> Frank Miller's political views don't necessarily jive with my own is really what I'm trying to get across here. Okay. But, uh, Julia, what do you think? And you, you, it sounds like you're very excited for the potential of a collaboration between the two. Yeah, because, you know, Frank Miller's art is so distinct and so yes. uh, striking. And I think that that's what you need for a Jodorowsky comic, you know, and that's the the stuff with Mobius is so fantastic because they, they work together so well. I think these two would work together really well. Yeah. And I think there's definitely a lot of respect in regards to Frank Miller. And that's one of the things that, that really is, defines a lot of his work, that he's very open about his respect for certain artists. And uh, it's just interesting to see them together. Uh, Frank Miller's had, had rumors of, of health issues in recent years, and uh, he doesn't look necessarily extremely well in this photo though he does look very happy to be there with Jodorowsky it's just sometimes I'm just amazed with the fact that Jodorowsky is in his almost mid-90s now and looks as young as he actually does Liam are you excited how how am I ever going to get him to be my guru you guys how am I going to do it (laughs) gotta start writing letters or show up to the coffee shop where he's doing his tarot reading seriously just hang around Paris sorry (laughs) to interject please it's okay liam uh are you excited about the possibility of a frank miller jodorowsky collaboration you know i'm I'm just not a huge frank miller fan sure uh uh, not just because of the recent political statements i mean even his art is not my style uh Mm -hmm. i can think of other artists i'd rather him work with that being said that doesn't mean I mean, I kind of, this is a weird thing to say because we had a criticism of one of Yodorowsky's books because the art didn't work for us, but I still would like to see him do more comics, even if I wasn't sure about the artist. And sure. I have, well, I don't love Frank Miller. I certainly like his art more than that other book we tried to read. That oh was really <laughs> you know what I mean? So it will certainly be better than that, right? It'll it'll, it'll yeah. be what it is. But, you know, if I could pick an artist... uh 
Oh, and you know I always struggle with his name. Uh, Mike M- Mignola? Mignola? Mignola, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that would be – that's what I want, actually, mm. is is Yodorowsky and Mike Mignola to get together and do some sort of like uh, – you know, stick to some familiar spooky themes that Mignola does, but then inject it with Yodorowsky's mysticism and uh, surreal nature. I think that would be amazing. I would – oh, my God, take all my money and my life. <laughs> I, that's what I want. I will say that if there was a Jodorowsky Miller collaboration, that would be a hugely uh, like the scope of it would be huge. Like people would be falling all over themselves. And and considering that Jodorowsky's work, it's not that it doesn't get attention his comic work, but in terms of kind of mainstream Western media, you don't see a lot of it. This could be a, a real boon in terms of people uh, giving you know putting eyes on some of his work. So I'd, I'd love to see it just to see what it would look like. And honestly. Any announcement of Jodorowsky comic work is interesting to me. Speaking of <laughs> Jodorowsky comic work that may or may not be interesting to you, we've been talking about on recent episodes about the Incall universe, the kind of expanded um, uh, comic universe uh, based on the Incall that uh, is now going to involve other creators. And I think we've all had certain skepticism in regards to it. I have not yet seen the free comic day Incall universe comic. I haven't been able to track it down but i did see the announcement of the upcoming graphic novel psychoverse by mark russell and yannick paquette uh which is now coming out in november of 2022 120 pages this is the uh, description on the simon and schuster website prepare to enter the psychoverse actually i'm seeing now that they have misspelled the word psychoverse in this description <laughs> that doesn't give me a lot of confidence unfortunately in a shocking <laughs> and explosive prequel to the legendary and best-selling saga the Incal, which is soon to be a major motion picture from academy award-winning director Taika Waititi. Oh yeah, uh, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot they're doing that. <laughs> I, I have He's to so say busy. that. How does he fucking do it, Taika? How does he Jesus. do it? I have to say that I am. I'm starting to feel skeptical about that in call film and whether it may ever happen. I really am very hopeful about it, but sometimes you know, just because Taika Waititi is such a huge mainstream director at this point, but maybe that's exactly the clout that you would need to do. And a maybe project he does Thor to get the money to do in Cal to do what he wants with that. Maybe, maybe, right? I mean, I guess I guess we'll see. Time will tell. But this uh, psychoverse, this is the first confirmation that I had that this is going to be a prequel to the Incall. Which, by the way, we've already had a prequel <laughs> to the Incall, written by Joe Dorowski. Uh Julia, now that you know a little information, now that you have an image here showing John DeFool, um, any do your reservations still stand in regards to this expanded Incall? universe uh well listeners uh look up the cover for psychoverse and we can all Mm -hmm. look at it together uh i this actually gives me a lot of hope i'm Mm. like oh okay they they clearly know what they're doing john defoe looks like exact spot on right and we have fucking depot who you all know (laughs) i adore so that gives me a lot of hope because if there's more depot hell yeah and then you get this kind of like psychedelic stuff going on behind the scenes and got the you know the triangles uh and whatnot um yeah it looks cool actually maybe we should give it a try I mean, I, I'm hope springs eternal in regards to this project. Had a lot of very talented people involved with it. I think the art looks really interesting, really polished. Liam, any thoughts on the Psychoverse? I mean, I'm definitely interested. Uh, I'm less excited by a prequel. Uh, mm. I I really want an expanded universe. Pick any number of characters that we didn't get enough of that maybe we Depot. could learn more about. Yeah. I <laughs> would, yeah, good, I would rather a Depot spinoff than a, than a prequel. Now that that's not to say that I think a prequel is necessarily a bad idea, but as you said, a, we already had one and B, you know, the, the ink call is so much about cycles anyway, that a prequel feels 
you know, you do a prequel because, well, actually, I don't know that there's any really good reason to do a prequel, but in theory, <laughs> you do a prequel because it's like there's a there's a really solid backstory here that we we need to get at. You know, like a, a movie. This is crazy pants. What I'm about to say, Please. a movie, a movie that I think could use a prequel of all things is um, Gangs of New York. Oh, interesting. Because I feel yeah. like the intro to Gangs of New York is way better than the rest of the movie. Oh. So like, I want to see the movie that's about the fight that only lasts five minutes that then we go to the movie, which I don't really enjoy that much. And uh, and so like, I, you know, there, there are properties like that where there's something there that's just a, you know, something interesting that we put in, but it's not fully explained because it's not the point. I just would rather that be explored. This, it's like, I, I'm pretty comfortable with where the story starts and where it ends, and I don't know that I need more, but a Depot spinoff could be yeah. interesting in and of its own, you know? I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm going to read – I don't know. I don't know. I was going to read it regardless. If I can get a hold of it, I'm going to read it, but uh, but I'm a little less excited by a prequel. Hmm. Yeah, I mean – Actually, I was not going to read it, and seeing this image actually makes me go, meh. Well, okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, we'll talk about it anyway when it comes out, and uh, and maybe we'll all have thoughts at that point. I don't think we'll devote an entire episode to it, but it, it is something that I'm very curious about, especially because if we start doing uh, J- Jodorowsky adjacent projects, Jesus, this, <laughs> yeah. this show will never end. <laughs> We've got enough to cover over the last, uh, <laughs> over the next few, few episodes. Uh, before we get into talking about the movie uh, itself, uh, or at least the movie in terms of, of how it exists, I want to talk a little bit about the beginnings of Santa Sangre. So this uh, began when Claudio Argento um, was collaborating with the writer Roberto Leone, a very uh, uh, accomplished and uh, prolific writer of Italian films. Uh, and Roberto Leone had been working in a uh, the library of a psychiatric hospital where he had an encounter with one of the patients who said that they were planning on killing him, but the voice in their head told him not to. And this kind of spurred on an idea, kind of this inkling at the center of Santa Sangre, the idea of a killer who is sympathetic and uh, maybe is not even entirely in control of their actions. And I guess uh, he had already been collaborating with Claudio Argento in some way. One thing that was that was brought to light in the commentary on Santa Sangre was that Claudio Argento had already been working with Jodorowsky in some capacity on a TV show about the Knights Templar. The idea is that Claudio Argento, who, by the way, is the brother of Dario Argento, the famous horror director, that he was trying to get away from Dario Argento's, you know, just having to work with his brother to some extent, or I don't know if it's soured or anything like that. So he'd heard about this idea from Roberto Leone, who had written the script. They had worked on the script a little bit together, and they said... You know, when they when they had a finished product, so to speak, they were like, who is the perfect director for this? And they were both fans of El Topo and the Holy Mountain. So they went and tracked down Jodorowsky. And uh, that began the collaboration. This is actually a wonderful story of Roberto Leone uh, visiting with Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky asked to meet him. And uh, I, I don't want to misconstrue the story. Uh, but Liam, do you know the one I'm talking about, about the idea yeah. of the... Yeah, do you, do you actually want to verbalize that? I again, sure, this is not sure. spot on. They, they were they were, you know he they were having a meeting in a building. Yodorowsky meets him outside and says, "We're going to a bar," and then he demands to know the exact time and date that uh, Leone wrote the story. And when he tells Yodorowsky, Yodorowsky's like, "Oh, that was the night I had the dream 
of this story and the the dream or the story angel took it from me and brought it to you so that you could write the story so in reality you're a story thief which sounds like quite an accusation only i guess then they both laughed and it was funny but you know (laughs) when when, when he got to that point in the story i thought and then did you guys have a fight that's that feels like awkward but instead it was a it was a moment of humor for them uh the other thing that's interesting doug is uh much like uh the stories of creation in the bible there are two versions of the creation of this movie because in his interview in the special features uh claudio puts the or- origination with Yodorowsky's meeting with the serial killer right yeah and yeah. that he brought that idea to leone but leone put it the other direction in his interview so it's it's yeah. a little hard to know i mean definitely both of these ideas were combined to make the final product but as far as which idea was first they have different takes on where it came from originally it's like it's like rashomon man everybody's story is slightly different you know that's just how humans work uh that's a good transition to gregorio cardenas hernandez who as you just mentioned liam there was a meeting a chance meeting between jodorowsky and hernandez it's always a chance uh, meeting that's what i love about it there's a lot of chance meetings (laughs) this is why i just need to go and wander around paris because clearly he just like it's a chance meeting is the way to go so Hernandez was a serial killer, uh, one of the first kind of like uh, famous serial killers in Mexico. Um, he, he murdered four prostitutes in the 1940s and became sort of a, a celebrity because he then was put in a, uh, a psychiatric hospital where uh, he stayed for many years, but eventually was pardoned, uh, became a lawyer, uh, became sort of a, a celebrity in Mexico and lived out the rest of his days uh, as a lawyer until his death in 1999. So this meeting that he had with um, with Jodorowsky, I guess it would have been in the 70s, he said that he was a fan of Jodorowsky's comics, his Panic Fables comics, and uh, Jodorowsky recognized who he was, and they had like a discussion about it. And the idea, I think, this kind of core idea about someone who is severely mentally ill and uh, kills because of some sort of compulsion that could then be cured. Uh, it is sort of a kind of a wider idea that I think some people struggle with it's one of the funny things about watching a lot of these 1970s cop movies which is always like you you see a killer who like pleads insanity and it seems to be like this get out of jail free card but there's something very hopeful about this this kind of best case scenario of someone getting the help that they need coming out and becoming this you know very productive member of society and a lawyer and very very respected Uh, and also someone who could be studied in terms of his his mental illness I don't know much about this case, so I don't want to speak with any uh, confidence about it. But it does, you know, it really it does seem to be at the core of the character uh, in Santa Sangre. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit about just quickly before we take our first break about this, the potential casting in Santa Sangre, because this is kind of brushed <laughs> over <laughs> in the uh, in the movie proper, in the documentary that we'll talk about a little later. But the doc said that the initial idea by Claudio Argento was to make this kind of like a, a big movie, so big, in fact, that the parents of Phoenix in this film were, could have been played by Angelica Houston and Jack Nicholson, who were a couple at the time. Uh, Julia, any thoughts on what that movie would be like? Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston. Uh, listeners, you cannot see me, but I am shaking my head, shaking my head no, shaking my head no, that's terrible. First of all, they would never, ever in a million years do it because no, you look at all the other so. stuff that's in this movie and like you look at what jack nicholson would have to both of them would have to do in this movie there's no way they would do it um but the maybe thought jack of it nicholson of the me... 1970s but it's hard no, to imagine not even like, this then, was the same because... year as batman came out 
yeah okay okay but we were talking about you know he's going to be wandering around naked with acid on his junk and then he's gonna like you know it's just awful like i don't feel like he would do it i feel like he would feel it would be so unappealing to audiences that it would turn them off i think yeah i think they're too big for movie stars to think about something like that um and i I frankly wouldn't want to see it i feel like it would i like that he never has stars in his movie that i feel like that would be so even though we're the movie we're talking about next week so maybe but i'll just say that you know of all of his big movies i like that there isn't anybody i recognize i Mm. love that I think, and I think it seemed like Jodorowsky, when it came to that idea of having celebrities, he thought the exact same thing, right? You know, you will be distracted by the stardom of someone like Jack Nicholson showing Definitely. up in this movie. He much preferred people that 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 you could lose yourself in the character a little bit more. Liam, any thoughts on? I don't know if it was just idle talk, by the way. I mean, it seems even even when Claudio Argento was working with larger budgets, and even the, the idea of working with a star as big as Jack Nicholson or Angelica Houston seems like it wasn't in the cards. But even as an unrealistic scenario, what do you think of the idea of those two actors being in this film? I I'm given more anxiety of by Jack Nicholson than Angelica Houston, and I think that's just because I just love her. And while obviously I think the performance from uh, the mother in the movie is magical, and I'm not sure anyone else could do as good a job. I at least believe that she, that she could do something good. You know what I yeah. mean? Whereas for me with Jack Nicholson, with that father character, I just feel like, I mean, first of all, the father character isn't in the movie long enough to justify the budget for Jack. Like, I just feel like <laughs> you look at the budget, whatever it's going to cost to have him in the movie, someone's going to want you to extend those moments. And I don't think we need more of that character. Plus, the guy who is the father, I think he's great at what he's meant to be doing, you know? Sure. Um, so, and 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 the the other thing that's true, it's a little less true in this movie, but it's true in, in some of the other movies we've talked about, is that Sometimes these characters feel more like uh, like archetypes, sure. Than, and so um, they work better as as playing their element without having to add much more. I, I think this film has a lot more underlying emotions than some of the other films, where where we just kind of need to know the basic outline of who the character is, and and we don't need to know their sort of inner being. And so I worry that uh, an actor like Jack Nicholson just wouldn't really fit that vibe for this father who who we don't need to know like his backstory or his inner life. You know what I mean? It just, it sure. just doesn't make sense for what we're doing. Um, uh, I will say also 89. I worry. Isn't that how, how far is that from, from, Batman, Jack Nicholson. No, that's what I was just saying. It's the same year, basically, right? So yeah, no, that's um, that's when I'm out. That's when I'm officially done with Jack Nicholson. So uh, I feel like at that point you're you're getting Jack Nicholson playing Jack Nicholson. That would have yeah. ruined the whole movie. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's an interesting thought experiment to think what that would be like, but it would be a very different movie. I also think about the clash of personalities. I mean, we know from that documentary that Jodorowsky was on one when he was making this uh, this film that he he had very uh, very much a forceful personality uh, there's a part of me that thinks the whole thing may have collapsed if you had Jack Nicholson on that set as they well just, but like, stro- like throttle each other Jesus <laughs> Hey, there's something to be said for what that might have created as well. But, but uh, with two, two, two strong personalities like that, though, it's either they want to kill each other or they see that they see themselves in, in each other, right? And then become you never know which way it's going to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 also, there's a part of me that thinks, well, why would we want 
a different formula than what we got that led to Santa Sangre because it's such an incredible film. We haven't sure. really talked about it, but we will. Let us take a break. When we return, let's go into it. We're going to talk about, in detail, 1989's Santa Sangre. circus artist escapes from a mental hospital to rejoin his armless mother, the leader of a strange religious cult, and is forced to enact brutal murders in her name as he becomes her arms. It's 1989's Santa Sangre, directed by the great Alejandro Jodorowsky, as already mentioned, uh, written by Roberto Leone, the Italian screenwriter, who also wrote films like The Master Touch, starring Kirk Douglas, uh, Street People, starring Roger Moore, uh, Casablanca Express with Jason Connery, and California with Giuliano Gemma. Uh, and Claudio Argento, the brother of Dario Argento. Of course, Jodorowsky himself was involved in the writing, as, as usually is the case with his films. And you can certainly feel a lot of Jodorowskian influence on this film. I want to jump right into it. Everyone's kind of general thoughts. Uh, in our little break there, Julia, it seemed like you had thoughts that were just bubbling out, that they were ready to kind of <laughs> escape into the world. Let's just get our general feelings on Santa Sangre out of the way. What do you think of this film? Okay, so the reason, so I, uh, I was giggling quite quite a lot earlier when he was like, "What, what are you going to be talking about a lot during this this episode?" And I'm giggling because, um, infamously, uh, so you know, my other podcast, Horror Movie Survival Guide, mm -hmm. uh, we talk about all these different kinds of killers, and my downfall is the cute boy killer. Oh. And I, like that's the one like this like the broken boy who you're gonna oh but he's okay and like there's something wrong with him but i can fix him like that kind of thing i'm so mm. into it so it's like norman bates or martin or you know eric binford from fade to black like that kind of thing mm. so this is so up my alley i can't even tell you i'm so incredibly in love uh with uh Christopher Jodorowsky and so watching this movie like you the first image is him naked and I'm like oh hello like that's <laughs> and it's so like it's not how you should be watching this movie because you know that's kind of weird right you shouldn't be in love with the person who's clearly a fucking psycho killer but uh that just totally rings my bell so this movie is me like being honest <laughs> all of the Jodorowsky boys seriously all of them they're so like there's because they got that like Jodorowsky intensity about them sure but they're kind of slightly more mellow so you feel like they're not gonna like you know like the so this is why you hear how I'm very I get very excited <laughs> <laughs> so for those who aren't as familiar with Santa Sangre uh this film has a the lead character the the killer in this film is Phoenix and Phoenix 
as a child is played by Aiden Jodorowsky, and as an adult is played by Axel, aka Cristobal Jodorowsky. Uh, and and also Brontus shows up briefly in this film, and Teo, uh, the the other Jodorowsky son who has uh, since passed on, is in this film as well. It really is a whole family affair. Outside of your love for the entire family, Julia, what did you think about the movie? Uh, I think Santa Sangre is brilliant. I think it's mm. so incredibly genius, and I feel like it's structured beautifully. Uh, the characters are so vivid and vibrant, and uh, the it feels like an art piece brought to life. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it it in terms of that idea of it being an art piece brought to life? That's something that someone could say about. The Holy Mountain and El Topo mm-hmm. as well. Do you feel like those three films, and and these are the ones at that at, at the time of uh, a lot of the interviews with Jodorowsky that we saw, he hadn't made his more recent films yet, and he said that you know the movies I'm most pleased with are El Topo, well Final and Least as well, uh, El, El Topo, Holy Mountain, and this film. Does it feel like they all fit together to you? Completely. Mm. Yeah, totally. And then you, because we we looked at, you know, because we talked about Tusk, right, which is the movie that he disowned because he felt like it wasn't him. And completely, you watch that and I was like, nope, I don't tell this is such a dark Trotterowski movie at all. And it was very weird. So to come back to this and be like, okay, here you go, 100%, you can watch this. And like, and the, you know, this is the thing I love about him is that you can tell it's a Jodorowsky movie, right? And so for me, those are my favorite filmmakers when just watching them like, oh, okay, I know who this is because they sure. have their own specific signature and their voice. And I feel like his voice is so strong in this. And I think that's partially because he's his sons, because his sons do such a great job and they're this kind of extension of him. And I feel like, I, I feel like he feels that way about them, that like they're giving him the performance he wants if he could at that age, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about the documentary about Santa Sangre after we finish talking about the film proper. There is a very interesting Tusk-related uh, anecdote in that documentary talking about uh, Jodorowsky's love of elephants, which plays into this film as well, where an elephant is uh, dies and quite graphically and then is ripped apart uh, on screen. Um, it, 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 it is still interesting to me. Just going back to Tusk, I know that we had a lot of, of mixed feelings in regards to that film, but the majesty of the elephant and the way that that actually is a thorough line into this film as well is very interesting. Liam, you you were very familiar with Santa Sangre previously. With this most recent watch, what did you think of the film? I mean, I agree with everything Julia said. It's it's an amazing film. Um, I love, I mean, I know we're going to talk about it later, but a, a moment I wanted to bring up from the documentary now was something Jodorowsky said that I think we've sort of talked about a little bit, uh, you know, in that each of these films uh, represent sort of where he's at in his interior, that he's expressing not just these larger ideas, but that they represent something he's dealing with himself. And he described this movie as him finally engaging his emotional reality in a way that the other films had not. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so interesting because if you had asked me prior to seeing these movies, well, this director, he's dealing with all these big subjects, but then he gets really into his emotional, dealing with his own emotions and his own relationships. I'd be like, well, that's going to be the most abstract of the of the movies. That'll be the one that is the least narrative. And that's not true. That actually, when he gets into this place where, and let's not be 
too much on the narrative. Like anyone who hasn't seen this movie, uh, when we say it's more narrative, it, it's not like he suddenly made a movie that doesn't have weird Jodorowsky stuff in it <laughs> at all. But but it is a little bit more telling a uh, a, a linear story that even yes. has a conclusion that is perhaps ambiguous, but not so ambiguous that you don't know what's going on. Right. Um, the idea that that is actually where he's being the most emotional and sharing his own interior struggles, you know, and, and still it has politics and philosophy and social realities. All that's still there, but there's he's connecting to something more about his own emotional reality. I just think that's really interesting. It really makes me think about his art and, 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 and you know, and, and it made me I was thinking about that relationship as I was watching it and also thinking about how that this movie has themes that we've seen in the other movies that I didn't realize the first few times I watched it. There are details that I associate with Jodorowsky, but also themes about, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the conflict between uh, folk uh, spirituality and established religion. Sure. uh, The ideas of, about uh, what is innocence and the relationships of society to those who are outside of society. And there's just so many things that I'm like, oh, yeah, this is kind of like similar to what he was doing in El Topo. Or, you know, this reminds me a little bit more of something in the Holy Mountain that the, the other times I've watched this movie, I wasn't thinking about any of that, you know. So that that was a really interesting thing that made this an even more sort of like beautiful experience. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I still lift up Holy Mountain as my favorite just because it's the one that I first was obsessed with. But my appreciation for this movie on this viewing really deepened. And it, it, it's really hard for me to say that Holy Mountain is better. I might actually put this almost equal with Holy Mountain. Interesting. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I do think that the uh, message about colonialism that was at the core of Tusk, I think is a lot more coherent in this film, even though it's Agreed. very much not on the surface as it is on that on in, in Tusk. Um, we've talked a little bit already about how this is very much a family affair. One of the things that we'll do in terms of our discussion on Santa Sangre is that we're going to split it into two parts. We're going to talk about the Young Phoenix section, which takes up, you know, roughly half of the movie, less than half, but enough to make it worthwhile. And then we'll talk about the older Phoenix section um, that, that makes up the bulk of the movie afterwards. One of the things that Jodorowsky says is that this is a movie in which he had to let go of his ego a little bit, because instead of casting himself in the film, uh, even though I guarantee you, and in fact, I think he even vocalizes that he wanted to cast himself as the father, (laughs) but he couldn't because it had to be strictly, it's very explicitly an American character in this case. But having his two sons be at the core and and two other sons show up in it is a very important part of this movie. And this is the kind of way that he kind of supplemented his ego a little bit by still having the Jodorowsky people, the Jodorowsky family within it. I want to ask about the performances. So I want to first start with the performance of Aiden... Jodorowsky as the young Phoenix in this film. He was nine years of age, obviously was going through a lot with not only being, you know, a featured player in his father's film, but in a a movie that deals with such rough and sometimes very controversial subject matter. What did you think? And and you can be honest about the performances here. Uh, These are two actors that hadn't done a lot on screen at this point. What did you think, starting with you, Julia, of Aiden Jodorowsky's performance in this film? It's funny because when I had thought, when I think back to the, when I think back, think of this movie, I only almost always just think of Cristobal, but I, and I sure. kind of dismiss Aiden a bit, but then watching it this time after having watched the documentary and him talking about all the uh, craziness he had to go through in this film. And and the thing about it is, is like, I feel like being a son of Jodorowsky would be 
the most intense thing ever and okay. probably not fun a lot of the times. Yeah. And I'm sure filming this didn't sound like he had a lot of fun. Uh, but the performance is like incendiary. And so you're like, I don't, I feel torn about it. Right. And I feel the same about, uh, Cristobal is like, I'm sure he put him through a lot. I mean, we see him eat a fucking raw fish, like the first minute of the movie. And you know, right. that's really just a raw fish. Like no way yeah. that Joe Rask is having like some like fake thing made. They're just, he's like, just eat the raw fish. And so like, <laughs> just, you know, just like, that's like a, a glimpse of what I'm sure he put him through. So it's that. I, I think he'd of- been living in a hotel room with an eagle for about a month at that point. So I guess. Jeez. <laughs> in terms Poor of asking guys. him to do things <laughs> so it's you know it's that push pull of jodorowsky is like if i was in a, if i if if he cast me in a movie i would do anything he told me to but it's also like it's going to be horrible but yeah. it's also the film's going to be magical so you're like i don't know how to feel about it but i feel like the performances from his sons in this movie and, and i've you know as i said like it coming up in his um his, old, his other ones with Brontus and Aiden when he's grown up are just like some of the best performances I've ever seen on film. That's a lot. It says, it says a lot about me. Like I, that's a very bold statement, but they are some of the best performances I've ever, ever seen. It's amazing to think that knowing how much these actors were put through the ringer in the making of this film, which seemed like an exhausting process, both emotionally and physically, that when they interview in that documentary, say Blanca Guerra, who played Concha in the film, or Tel Matteo as the uh, tattooed woman, they both have such high regard for Jodorowsky as an artist. I mean, Telma basically is like, you know, she's since passed on, but like she, she's like, I wish that he would just call me up tomorrow and make another movie with me. I mean, that's how much that they love that kind of artistic... I guess the intensity is part of it, part of the reason that people take to him as a creator, though it does sound like at, t- at times that uh, the behind the scenes that in regards to like the crew, that, that sometimes they were being terrorized by the process. How about you, uh, Liam? What did you think of Aiden's performance in this film? It's really it's really great. It's it's hard because I agree with Julia. It's it's difficult not to think of Cristobal and to think of the older Phoenix. Um, <clears throat> and when I say that, I mean... In the most intense way. I I had never thought of this before, but because we were going to be talking about it, I really did think very intensely about the performance and realizing that, uh, you know, Cristobal is not the most famous actor of our time, hailed by all people everywhere. As the mo- this performance is unbelievable. I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just really think he goes to places that I I realized were probably near impossible to get to. The stuff that he does... Uh, with the mother character in the hands is goddamn magical. Like there, there, there are moments watching it where I thought that's not real, right? That those are her fucking hands. There's no way they didn't actually fucking do it, and they did. And it's it's just next level shit. Uh, so then it's easy to then forget that like, uh, you know, an, an eight year old, nine year old boy, you know, managed to be very convincing in scenes that are not easy to be convincing that he sure. gets to places emotionally and it's you know it's maybe not a groundbreaking thing per se but i don't think it's easy for someone to get that kind of performance now of course in the documentary we learned that there was sometimes some very <laughs> physical ways that he got those performances out of him uh, but you know I, I i'm still impressed by it and i think it sells you know, the way I think about the two halves of this movie is that um, the first half, though it is filled with, you know, all, all manner of horrifying things, is a bit more whimsical than the second half, which hmm. takes on a tone that I think is more uh, similar to 
uh, a kind of horror movie. You know, is it is it, interesting that um, it, it, the cinematographer referred to the movie as Baroque, and mm-hmm. I thought like, oh, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, but but the, the some of the things that the that Aiden is asked to respond to are maybe even more demanding because they are so uh uh hyper hyper real you know mm-hmm. uh but i'm never like oh that kid is barely keeping it together he just wants to laugh right now cuz i think that yes there's dark things but i think as a kid it's it's not that hard to portray at times that you're scared it sure. might be harder not to laugh because it's all pretend right it's you're all on a set and you're doing your thing and i didn't feel i felt like him and to be fair the the young woman who played the young um Alma were both very, very good and very believable in, in a way that I think it's hard to get that kind of performance out of, out of kids. And there's very much a sweetness in their relationship, which, you know, sweetness is not necessarily a word that we've used very often in talking about <laughs> Jodorowsky's films up to this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you would necessarily both agree with this, but one of the other reasons I split this movie in two in terms of the discussion is that the first half, or the part with the young phoenix, feels a little bit more in line with the sort of visual style and the sort of thematic elements that we've seen in the holy mountain and el topo previously uh there's a lot of striking imagery in it which isn't to say that there isn't in the second half as well but maybe it's because the surrealism is dialed up a little with the circus material it's not that the second half is necessarily not surreal but it's a little bit more directly coherent i think um and coherence in this case is not necessarily a good or bad thing it's just the way that i would use to describe it i was wondering if there were any images that particularly stuck out to the two of you in this first half and i i use that word images deliberately because there's you know we can't go over everything that happens it is a very wild first half of this movie i already mentioned the the death of the elephant and i mean there's just lots going on here but when you think about this first half what are the some of the images that uh jump out at you starting with you julia um honestly it's the uh the the shot of uh when uh right before she's gonna throw uh conscious gonna throw the acid on him when she sure. when they, she finds them with tattooed woman and that shot of of the dad taking his jacket off, like there's ca- the cameras over his head goes over. And then we see her on the bed, like holding her legs open and like screaming. And it's so incredibly erotic, but so, so unappealing at the same yes. time. Mm-hmm. And it like, that feels like the Jodorowsky sex is like, Jodor- there's a lot of nudity, like the, like she's, she's sexy, but grotesque as well. And sure. I think that you never get really like sexy sex. <laughs> Jodorowsky's always <laughs> like, eh, it makes me feel kind of uncomfortable, but she's hypnotic. Like I can't stop looking at her body. Like even if she didn't have the tattoos on her, like her, she's fucking statuesque amazingness. Sure. But then, mm-hmm. you know, they have these incredible imagery like on her that you can't stop looking at. So I think about her a lot. I mean, I think, I think about him and his little, and his little outfit. Um, and I think, you know, that, that beautiful outfit that we see Alma in with her, with her face painted and the, and the tutu and the head headpiece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I also think a lot about that church in the film and how mm. yeah, beautiful I was thinking that's the same design. thing. Yeah. And that holy blood. Pool. It's holy blood. <laughs> holy, holy blood. Exactly. <laughs> that entire sequence, I think, is so fascinating. And I think maybe that's what feels connected most with something like the Holy Mountain to me. It feels like something that could could have come directly out of it with all the bulldozers, like like. And all the the crowd running away and it being destroyed, and even the uh, the armless uh, martyred uh, woman at its core, which of course becomes <laughs> quite literal a little bit later in the film. It's just I, I, I love. Can I ask you guys a question? Sure. Yeah. Uh, is is it really holy blood? 
or is it oh the, in the <laughs> what do you think are they crazy or are they, or are they really like do they really have something magical going on you know it's funny that you have that uh that religious figure there who who you know says that it's just paint it's just paint when i think about you know most of the holy symbols and 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 things that are considered these sacred objects which are no real no, no more real than maybe paint and water anyway so to me i'm probably the wrong person to ask because i'm not a very spiritual person but liam I'd no love but to i'm asking your... your opinion in this movie do you oh, think in, that in... she in the movie are they do they really have a miracle there is that really like the saint is she real or are they all insane uh i don't think because i don't necessarily I think insanity it changes how you feel about the mother, right? Because the mother sure. would, is the mother insane from day one, or is she in this like the, the leader of this like miracle church? Yeah, because I guess the question is, if it's not real blood, if it's not holy blood, is she fully aware that it's not, but still goes along with it? I I don't know if I necessarily have a, a strong answer for it. Uh, I I think that it is paint and water, <laughs> both literally and figuratively in the core of the movie. But I don't know if she necessarily, if that's if that's that important to her. Uh, if it, the symbolic uh, aspects of it are so important that it doesn't really matter. But certainly the way that, that they approach it in the film is that she thinks it's literally the case. How about yourself, Liam? I, I'm inclined. So first and foremost, I think I'm inclined to believe that something they really believe in is going on because the way that I interpret the film is that uh, except for if you want to count the temporary insanity of attacking um, the woman and, and her husband, I don't think she's ever insane. I think the the reveal of the movie is that the, the crazy mother that is ruining his life is him and that his mom is never, she's, she was actually fought. I mean, she commits this horrifying act against um, his dad, who is literally America, but that was right. justified in a sense, honestly. Um, and so, uh, and then she dies. And then the the horrible specter that is haunting him is the woman is the mother in his head. And so, like, for me, I think that character is, you know, I guess kind of complex, but I'm pretty solid about all the way through. And so, you know, maybe the blood is just paint. But uh, I think what that moment says to me is um, the the site is holy because the people believe in it. And the site is holy because of where it is and, and what it offers, because quite literally they're filming at the Catholic Church that was for the prostitutes, prostitutes in the area. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if there is nothing to me that makes me less anti-church than thinking about a church that is there for the people that everyone else thinks don't deserve a church. You know, like it's, it's one of those things I've always been um, – you know, uh, uh, for people who don't know, my experience with religion really began in Protestantism. And it, for Protestants, there's always this real issue with Catholicism and this real anxiety about it. And a lot of the stuff that should have gone away over the last 800 or 500 years is still there present in a lot of Protestant churches when it comes to talking about Catholicism. And I, I am much more sympathetic to the Catholic Church in the sense of the variety. So like, uh, on one hand, there's great evils from the Catholic Church all throughout history, and technically I think the Orthodox Church was right in the split that created the Catholic Church in the first place. But uh, when it comes to the fact that it is a broad umbrella under which lots of things can exist, I think that aspect of it is the most interesting and meaningful, and, and I think it's where – Yodorowsky actually identifies with Catholicism in some sense, even though he himself is not Catholic in any way. Um, it was, is actually Jewish, in, you know, it, it, as far as his family is concerned. Um, it, the idea that in Catholicism you get local spirituality 
You get local saints. You get people who develop their own practices. And often those practices represent a history that's there. And uh, the Catholic Church is at its worst for them when uh, uh, some sort of authority comes along and says, no, this is bad. What you're doing is bad. Right. It's like uh, this was this this ramshackle church where these people think a saint's blood is, whether this is blood or not, is the good part of this weird thing that you do. This because is one it's, of the... It's an accessible is, sort of spirituality. To yeah, and, who, yeah right, right. And, and the fact that it can exist is is maybe an idea that this is maybe not so bad an idea, and so crushing it based purely on some idea of authority is like the most evil. Like to me, I find that moment with that man declaring that it's paint more evil than when later Phoenix is murdering people. <laughs> there, there, there's a uh, cutscene from Santa Sagre that's on the Blu-ray that shows that after the church is destroyed, that uh, Concha, uh, Phoenix's mother, she rebuilds the church basically in her own home and put and has the saint uh, with the the armor sure. saint. Up there, yeah. which suggests that that she certainly is a true believer in some capacity that she. But continues. it's interesting, Liam, that you say that you don't think she's insane because I think she's crackers from the moment we see her. Like she's so into her crazy religion that it. I was like, if my mother was like that, oh my god, right? It's just she's. I think that anybody who would be that so into religion that they're willing to die for it i don't understand at all so like i think yeah, like, that's look funny. At, i it don't didn't rub me it, as crazy at all <laughs> oh really i think it's it's horrifying to me like both of his parents are horrifying right like this movie is basically about being abused by your parents either mentally or physically mm. and you know being having a fucking knife in your chest by your dad like it's just you know it's awful but i think that like i find both of his parents just terrifying and i find her in you know it, it, this i'm talking about pre pre uh, arms right like sure. before that in the beginning of this movie this young phoenix i find her absolutely terrifying wow i don't i not only do i not feel that in the documentary when he said well the dad is america and the mom is mexico and you know there's there's things about mexico that are good i was like yeah that all tracks like i was like totally <laughs> fine with it like i i literally am like i mean don't get me wrong like i think that uh she obviously is very intense and her relationship to the father is the cause of her downfall but um but i don't find her nearly as horrifying and nefarious as the father at all like i don't find them comparable figures i think her intensity is part of the reason that phoenix becomes fucked up later uh but i think the events of what happened are are far more damaging than just her insanity and, and especially because for me when i see the conflict she's having with the guy who wants to destroy it i see that even though it's imbued with religiosity as primarily an economic thing that is about the poor and the rich and the fact that it's infused with religion it's like the whole oscar romero thing like yes that was partly about him giving communion to the poor but really it's about capitalism and so like that i mean there's a ton of I could go through a ton of situations throughout church history, which is like what I studied, and a lot of things that are about the devoted and the less devoted having conflict. I'm like, eh, that's actually about capitalism. That's actually about capitalism. And so that's how I felt watching this was like, yeah, this is about the rich and the poor at each other's throats. And I felt less 
freaked out by her spirituality than than I was by the man willing to bulldoze the church. You know what's great about movies is that we can both watch this movie and you can watch it and have those thoughts and I don't think that at all. I have a completely different this is why we have this podcast though. This yeah, is why talking about movies is interesting. Is because you I, see that and I go, oh okay, interesting. I've never thought of it that way. But it you know makes sense. It's just I, not it, how my brain works. In a classic, I'm too busy looking at fucking Cristobal. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true too. In a classic form of of me uh, trying to play both sides, my feelings are somewhat in the middle. Uh, in the sense sure, that sure. Uh, I do think her religious fervor contributes to his mental illness, but I do think that they are very careful to show that instead of her, you know, she was willing to martyr herself in front of that bulldozer, but when she sees her son and how upset he is, she immediately turns away from it and comforts him instead. She's obviously meant to be a much more sympathetic figure than his father, who's shown as just this oafish, violent, you know, murderer, really. We know that he's a murderer even from the beginning. Um, and th- that he is meant to be have been a corrupting influence on the mother to a certain extent as well. But, you know, the fact that she has religious belief and the fact that it takes this form of fervor and uh, almost insanity uh, is, I mean, frankly, is not that far removed from a large part of the country I live in and a large part of the country that you guys live in as well. I did want to mention that there's a an anecdote on the commentary for the film featuring Alejandro Jodorowsky, where he mentions that that church that they filmed in, which was a prostitute's church, that the prostitutes would get paid, I think, three pesos, he said, and one they would keep, one would go to the pimp. And one would go to the priest for that church, which I thought was wow. such, I don't know if that's necessarily a literal truth, but what a fascinating view of what that church represented in that particular area. Liam, we never really got to the idea. Any other images in the film that really stuck out to you? Oh, right. Well, actually, I wanted to in the first say, half, I, say. I wanted to say thank you to Julia for her description of the tattooed woman, because that's literally what I was thinking is that on one hand, this is the the way that she's presented is a bit grotesque, but also she's so sexy. Yeah, yeah. And, and I found myself t- turned on and horrified by her in equal measure. And it, that's it, what it, every it, woman dreams dreams of, right? Yeah, right. I'm turning exactly. you on and horrifying you at the same time. Well, if she was interacting with any human who was a normal human in that first half, then it would be maybe different. But it's because she is seducing a man who is for me horrifying from the moment he's on the screen (laughs) Uh, just everything about him makes me upset from moment one and so uh you know it it was it's interesting to watch it in that sense because she definitely has a sense of uh of her own uh uh uh, power in it but also uh, she's presented as seducing this man who i think is terrible from from the first moment um, but to be fair like she kind of seduces everybody right i think right, that's like her right. modus operandi that's just how oh, totally. she is like you look like that there's no way you push any other button so i think it's more like i don't see what she, i guess she's going for power with him right because he owns the circus yeah like, maybe but she has a job doing what she's doing it's not mm-hmm. like you're gonna get a promotion or anything you just <laughs> do what you do although well the, it, it I, doesn't the, help that she yells at all like the first introduction is her exactly. yelling at Alba because Alba's yeah. scared to step on fire. So I think that sort of sets us up to be a little more negative about her. But also, yeah, I, I found myself wondering, like, is it just because he's in charge of the ch- of the the church of the circus? Like, what is it about him that you would even want to interact with him? You know, 
I think that probably plays into one of the things I wanted to talk about next, something we've already touched on a little bit, is the idea of colonialism. The idea of this character, Orgo, played by Guy Stockwell in the film, representing America, uh, the, att- the attempts. You know, this is called the Gringo Circus, you know, quite literally. This is uh, an attempt to make Mexico, which is where the movie takes place in Mexico City, uh, more American and the kind of perverting influence on that. One of the things that that Jodorowsky himself talks about is this kind of allegory and even the idea of the Spanish attempting to colonize and and the way that Mexico has resisted a lot of the change that has tried to been forced upon them. Uh, just sticking with you for a second, Liam, uh, what was your interpretation of how that's incorporated into the film? It feels like it's much more a part of the overall theme in the first half rather than the second, but maybe I'm misinterpreting that. Yeah, I don't, I've actually, that's the part that I've been trying to figure out is how does that theme play out in the second half, you know, and, sure. you know, him, him seeing himself as an eagle, well, that's a very important symbol sure. in Mexican folklore and in, in the culture, um, and then the ways that uh, he's haunted by his mother, how does that work, you know, and, and, and um, the, the relationship with the city and all, all the ways that... Uh, we, we see him inter- interacting with um, both the performances and the culture and stuff. I don't know that I, I, I see it as strongly in the in the second half. In I mean, the I guess you half, can interpret the unwittingly being the arms of, right? You know, that someone is being pushing you into doing sure. these horrific acts without you having any agency over it. I mean, I guess there's something there as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just there's, you know, we've talked before about how in Holy Mountain and El Topo, there's these very sort of arch- archetypal ideas that like come across in various characters and people kind of represent things, but it's not always literal, you know, like someone's in the movie and they kind of represent the church, but they're not literally the church. You know what I mean? It's not like a one to one relationship. They right. just sort of create ideas. And, and I get more of those feelings in the beginning. Um, and, you know, I, I watched a documentary after I watched the movie. So it was like, I'm watching it going like, it's weird how the dad's American and it's weird how, you know what I mean? Like, so all these things that he pointed out is like, well, I also had society on the mind because I did this, this, and this. I was like, oh, I noticed those things, but noticing them doesn't necessarily correlate to then having a clear interpretation, which makes sense because we've said before that trying to map his films onto a one-to-one, like this means this and this means that. That doesn't make sense. You just gotta like feel them out. And for me, um, it's almost like, this more uh, granule relationship of the story between the father and the mother and how that affects the son, that is itself on the surface, but it carries echoes of a larger relationship between Mexico and their neighbor to the north and their the past of this past trauma of, uh, of what had happened with uh, Spanish uh, uh, colonialism and all that stuff. So I think there's like echoes of it there, but it, you know, I, at no point, even during that first point where I was like, clearly the message of this is blah. Like this also is something in which I can understand how it was influencing the characterization, but I don't think there's like a, and, and therefore there's no equation with which to decode that section of the movie. You know? Right. And you could also just see it as it, because it's such a contributing factor to Phoenix's mental illness that it's like sure, the sure, echo sure. comes from that in the second half of the film. Right. I mean, that yeah, he, yeah, his yeah. innocence has been perverted by this U S influence. And that is part of the reason that he becomes who he becomes. Uh, Julia, any thoughts on that as well? This idea, this theme of colonialism in the film and did it resonate with you when you were watching it? 
I didn't even think about it in any way, shape, or form. Like you can watch this movie and not think about that at all. Sure, like, you know absolutely. because he's he's wearing. Yeah, he looks. You know, they mentioned he's from America. He killed a lady in America. He can't go back. He hates that. We know that. He's got his sparkly, you know, United States outfit, but he works in a circus. It's just a sparkly outfit, right? Like it can't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. So maybe I'm shallow, but I didn't look at the movie that way at all. I just kind of read it on the surface. I mean, and I know that with Jodorowsky, there's always going to be layers, right? Like it's never really just about this. And I understand that, but I guess I never look at movies from like a political standpoint that never really right. enters my brain. And, and the fact is that you could probably interpret it a number of different ways. And I think a lot of the reason that I'm a little more fixated now on it is because Jodorowsky explicitly mentions it on the commentary, but of course, not the commentary, sorry, on the in the documentary, but I didn't see that documentary until after I watched the film. I certainly had the idea, you know, the gringo, the fact that he is such kind of a cartoon, the, uh, this, this being Orgo, the father of Phoenix, that he's such a kind of a cartoon version of what an American would look like. It was certainly in my mind, but I didn't really crystallize uh, for me until hearing Jodorowsky talk about it. And I feel like a rewatch would give me a different perspective on it, theoretically. I want to talk a little bit about the elephant sequence in this film and the funeral and, and the aftermath. <laughs> of it do we have to <laughs> i it is uh, it's a difficult watch uh i don't think you can get through a jodorowsky film without some example of animal violence there's also some chickens who have a hard time a little bit later or some roosters um so this involves a very sad sequence with a dying elephant phoenix uh, obviously has a lot of affection for it begs the elephant not to die the elephant does indeed die there is this funeral procession which has an, an unbelievable amount of extras on the side probably just people watching an actual parade uh and it's this un the parade itself is unbelievable in terms of the, the what people are wearing uh this kind of funeral procession they get to a um uh, a dumping ground where they dump this uh large coffin i guess you would call it and then all of these people from around they go into this uh this dumping ground rip the coffin apart rip the elephant apart and you know, distribute the parts of the elephant to the people. I think one of the things that uh, Jodorowsky said, either in the commentary or in the documentary, that that this is something that's repeated in the film, that when we die, we become food. After Orgo dies, the, the dogs eat him. Uh, we see birds eating. We see, You know, this is just a, a natural part of life. I just wanted to hear what everyone's interpretation of this entire sequence was, because I'm not sure I fully grasp all of what it's meaning to say. Sticking with you, Julia, I know it was hard to watch. What is going on with the elephant? So my hope in this scene with the dying elephant is that, and I watch the cuts carefully, and I'm pretty sure that the elephant's okay. Yes, I think so scene. too. I think that they, when they show blood coming out of its trunk, it's never like actually coming out of the elephant's trunk. They do a close up, and there's like a fake trunk. Yeah. So I especially because we elephant... see the fake trunk later being distributed to the exactly. Crowd. So I think mm -hmm. that I think I think you know because obviously in other movies like you clearly see that he's really killing these animals, and I'm pretty sure this elephant was okay. So, I mean, it's gross and it, it's very upsetting, but it's also like, all right, I think he's fine. I'm very hopeful that there's also really not a dead elephant that they're distributing, that there's really just chunks of meat that they're throwing. Right. Those are that. So I'm looking on the optimistic side. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, um, but, you know, again, it, it is, you know, it, it, yeah, it's upsetting. And this is, you know, and this is the thing with Jodorowsky, right? Is like when I hesitate to show movies of his to people, like it's like this kind of stuff where I'm like, uh, I really don't know what to do with this. I, it's not, you know, it's very uncomfortable to watch, uh, but sure. it's something that's important to the character. And so you go, okay, it's still beautiful, but it's just horrifying. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, you used that word grotesque earlier, and that might be the word that came up most often when watching this film is that kind of balance of beauty and grotesquerie throughout the entire thing. And and sometimes they exist in the same place. But in terms of like the the, the fact that these people are ripping apart the elephant, do you think of that as like we are supposed to be judging them as being somewhat evil? It seems like the funeral procession itself seems seem a little like put off by the fact that this is happening. But then Jodorowsky talking about how, hey, you know, it's food now. There's no reason that they shouldn't be distributing it. I just was a little confused about what we're supposed to take away from it. I guess I just feel like if there's people who are starving that, yeah, here's a huge amount of food. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but what is he trying to say with this symbolically? I have no idea. It's fucking Jordan Rousey. Who can say? <laughs> Maybe just I a mean, continuation of, of Phoenix's loss of innocence around this time period. Mm, that's not the only death he'll see. Right. Because soon we, afterwards. We, and that's the, the heartbreaking part of this is like, yes, the elephant's dying and it's sad, but it's really Phoenix's reaction, you know, yes. watching him, begging him not to die. And then, and then not only watching them just kind of dump him as trash, which is horrifying, but then to watch these people come your friend apart like you know like this is no reason you know, no wonder that phoenix is so so uh, mentally ill when we see him in the second half is like all of these things just and, and and his father next to him treating him like it's not a big deal right yeah, like yeah. don't cry you're don't you're being you're being a big girl like why are you and, crying and, and leading directly into him being tattooed on the chest uh, as well uh yeah it's it's there's a lot going on for poor phoenix in this section uh liam uh, do you have any other interpretation about the sequence with the elephant Oh, no, I have no idea. I mean, it, you know, I, 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 I kind of forgot that he thought of elephants as as godlike figures, you know. Yeah. So when it happened, it felt just sad to me. And then in the documentary, he's like, oh, he watches God die. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, oh, that's a whole other aspect of this. Um, I'll be honest, you know, it, it, Julia was saying how she hadn't really thought much about any sort of political things with this movie. Um, it never occurred to me that that might be real elephant being tossed out of the coffin. And thus, though I found the sequence sad, I didn't find it that upsetting. I was kind of like, yeah, they threw a big thing and then they threw some meat out of it. Like I found, I found that the, the elephant bleeding from its uh, uh, trunk. trunk yeah. yeah. I found that more upsetting, even though that almost certainly was a special effect as well. Yeah. It's just, it's just red water. I mean, I, I, I found it, I found it upsetting too. Holy blood. Holy blood. Holy blood. <laughs> well, but exactly. I thought that would, we're going with the theme of the movie here. It's holy blood from the elephant. Um, it is upsetting. The first time I saw this movie, when the elephant blows out the blood from its nose, I was like, ugh. And then immediately my brain went, it's just red water, man. Get the fuck over it. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like... Give I'm yourself ma- over to the movie, please, Liam. In, well, really I'll, I'll tell you what. Image. In, yeah, re- in re-watching it, I remember, because I've said to people before how much I like the movie, and I've had people say like, oh, because you like dead elephants? Blah. Like I'm a fucking asshole for liking the movie. And I heard watch, that when we were talking about Tusk, when I was talking about it on social media, people were very upset about the treatment of the elephants in that film. Well, that uh, okay. So th- there you go. With Tusk, there are moments where I thought they might be fucking up that elephant in real life, mm-hmm. and no part of me during this movie w- w- was I feeling that. And on this rewatch, I was like, I'm really going to focus on this sequence because people seem to be very upset by it. I just don't find it upsetting, man. I I don't know. I'm, I maybe I'm just turned off to the struggle of elephants. But uh, the 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 Tony Jaw movie where he fights for all the elephants yeah. that is more upsetting to me than this movie. Because <laughs> at least he actually finds the skeleton of his friend, and then he fucking yeah. loses it and breaks the back of fifty different men because he's so upset about his dead elephant friend. That is like more impactful to me than this sequence, which I found to just be uh, surreal. 
it's a surreal representation and very much so like the idea that at the edge of town there's all these folks who live in the dump like that is for me very much a metaphor like that that i think that's just really those people just really live there oh no i don't i don't i don't don't think that's a set i think those people are just really living there oh i don't think so i'm 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 like i'm like almost 100 percent sure that doesn't exist Right outside of Mexico City, yeah. I've, I mean, I mean I've those, only the, the the actual houses that were there obviously were were standing beforehand. I don't think there were sure, but like for... to the extent that they're all like covered, covered in, white in white paint. Yeah, no, I think I think that is amount yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's all an exaggeration of to represent a, a reality, but not. I don't think it's it's literal. I mean, one hundred percent, I could be wrong, and if people want to tell us about that, I would love to hear about it. But. Um, I do think like the imagery, it, it actually made me think of his work with, with, with Mobius. Like sure. I saw I, that whole sequence felt like something that would have been in the in call. And it made me think about the in call actually mm, the whole time. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but uh, you know, though, though those big chunks of meat are upsetting because I do wonder where they come from. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I just assumed that they, it was a special effect and whatever, whatever. Whereas I've definitely talked to people who are like, yeah, you know, there's that dead elephant in Sana Sangre. And I'm like, I don't know that that's I, – it's just interesting because of his reputation. I think a lot of people think he actually fucking killed an elephant and gave it to a bunch of people. And I don't know that that's a real representation of what happens but in we, that scene. But we don't know. This is the question. We don't yeah, know. I, yeah, yeah. I, I really don't think so. I'm, 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 I'm leaning Fingers towards crossed. No. Fingers crossed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I just want to talk briefly before we finish up this section about the deaths of Orgo and Concha, which I guess is a bit of a spoiler. But at this point, we're going to be talking about everything. So as we've as you've alluded to already, Julia, what happens is that Orgo is cheating on his wife, Concha, with the tattooed woman. She catches them in the act. She <laughs> finds some very conveniently located acid and pours it over Orgo's genitals. Uh, and then she has her arms cut off by Orgo, who... Then slices his own throat and uh, and then is eaten by dogs. <laughs> Apparently, all while Phoenix is watching it from he's watching it from inside the trailer, unable to do anything to stop it from happening. Uh, very disturbing. One of the more disturbing sequences in the entire film, uh, and obviously extremely violent. This is a very violent movie generally. Uh, any thoughts about that sequence, Julia? Um, it it really does kind of mark a turning point and sort of a a a a, a clear division in terms of the movie because afterwards we're going to see um phoenix all grown up and in the mental hospital it should be noted by the way that this is all uh everything we talked about so far is sort of a flashback as well because the movie opens with uh, a grown phoenix in the mental hospital we learn about this first and then we see kind of a continuation of that what did you think about this murder sequence i think the thing that makes it the most horrific is that you know that phoenix is watching Yes. Um, it's like I went to go see. I don't know if you guys have seen High Tension, um, which yes, is an incredibly gory graphic horror movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and when I saw it in the theater on opening day, and someone brought their kid, and the kid <laughs> kept saying, "Like I, I'm really scared. Like I want to leave," and the mom wouldn't let her. And so I could watching that movie with that in mind. It like mm. fucked up my whole. I was like, I can't sure. watch it. I feel so terrible like knowing that it's okay that i'm seeing these images it's not okay that they're seeing those images that's so interesting the idea that's like it's when you're watching something by yourself your reaction is all that's important but when you're thinking about someone else's reaction it's like showing a movie to somebody mm-hmm. that's a movie that you really love and being kind of hyper aware of how they're responding to it yeah so i think i think that's the part of this that that hits hardest for me is like what you know it, this is just going to mess watching your parents die in front of your eyes like sure. that's the worst thing you can think of right um it's it's yeah horrific and 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 very you know and i'm a very uh 
stalwart uh, gore factor hound right i love that kind of stuff but you know even watching him like walk with the blood coming out of his junk because he's just had it acid like i'm not a guy and i'm sure for you guys it's way worse but it's still awful just so terrible hey it's not great Uh, but but it's interesting (laughs) it's interesting that the tattooed woman gets away Mm -hmm. right like she doesn't get any she'll get punishment later but she doesn't get any punishment now right so i think that you know like you would think like she would deserve the punishment quote unquote because she's came in and seduced and whatnot um but she just kind of gets away which is good because uh, you know we have stuff going on later um but yeah it's quite a sequence poor phoenix yeah and alma too she's watching too and 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 the people who are just watching it all happen on the side of the street as well, who are just must be wondering what the hell is going on. But I guess the suggestion is that this particular part of Mexico City, there's a lot of, of uh, unpleasantness that might But also there. a continuous party, which I like. Yes, with lots of music dancing going on. And yeah, yeah, just yeah. fucking partying all the time. Liam, how about yourself? What did you think of this death sequence uh, featuring Orgo and Concha? Oh, it's upsetting. I mean, obviously, I hate this father character, yeah. but Yodorowsky makes it clear that the that sequence of violence, though uh, perhaps understandable, it's it's horrifying enough that you don't have any sort of like uh, relief. It's not cathartic. You know what right. I mean? Like he's such a shitty character. You could kill him in a way where some members of the audience are going to be like, "Yeah, fuck him." But that doesn't happen. It doesn't feel celebratory. It feels very much like this is a horrible moment for everyone involved, especially because he kills himself, right? Because he slits yeah. his own throat that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's the oh, oh man. Yeah, it's upsetting. Which is good. It's supposed to be. It should be upsetting. I think if it had come, if it had played differently on an emotional tenor it would have made the movie not as good i think this is exactly the sort of tragic horror that helps us feel a little bit of compassion for phoenix later as a character you know because it's like we know what happened to him and how fucking traumatic it was a question just came to my mind and i want to get both of your thoughts on this very very quickly do you think that concha actually had her arms cut off at all like, did that actually happen, or was she just killed? Because the, the idea of her taking the form of this martyred woman, just like the, the religious figure with the arms, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was literal truth that when, you know, that in his fantasy version of her in the second half of the film, that she didn't have arms, because he maybe wouldn't even have known. He just saw her get carried away. Do you think that there was literally that her arms got cut off? Just sticking with you for a second, Liam? I thought so because I thought when he sees the body being carried away, that's meant to be a moment that actually happened right. and it looked like the body didn't have arms. But I I, right. I could be wrong. I don't know. It's hard to, to tell. And, the, you know, there are plenty of things in this movie where it's hard to know if it should matter or not. You know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, 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 Julia, I, it's probably not even that important, but it's just something that sprung to mind, whether, it, you know, the conflating of that religion that his mother was so um, so fervent about mm-hmm. and and this 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 saint at its core and whether the arms was just a kind of an extension of that. But, you know, the, the suggestion is that he actually saw his mother get her arms cut off. Do you think that yeah. actually happened? Yeah, I do, because I thought in my mind it was the father's kind of ultimate revenge. Right. To say, like, you you worship this armless woman and now you right. become her. Mm. So that's what it seemed like to me. Can I also just mention, uh, this movie, 
lack of communication is a big part of why this world oh, yes. is wrong. Oh, yes. Like, why, if if conscious suspects that something's going on with a tattooed woman and her husband just fucking say something, right? She's yeah. a strong-ass woman. Like, I don't understand why she takes this backseat with this revenge mode when I feel like she could just march over to her or to him and be like, stop, I see what you're fucking doing. Right. Yeah. So like it's this weird thing of like it's it goes so it gets so dramatic when it could be resolved so easily. Uh, but I, I this is how films work. Right. This is the, the you make the world fantastical. It also seems that she's somewhat I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but like the fact that he's a piece of shit is one of the things that she finds appealing about him. How in that are they she together? Got, she... Why are they together? I don't understand. She's a I mean, circus performer. The grotesque slash... appeal of the United States of America is something that I think about uh, a lot <laughs> from my perspective here burn. in Canada. <laughs> it's funny you say that, Julia, because her relationship to him uh, recently, we're, we haven't done the episode yet, but for Cinepunks, we're doing a Claire Denis double. And in uh, Let the Sunshine In, there's that moment where Julia Pinoche talks about how her last relationship, the fact that he was an asshole was how she got off. When she thought about what an asshole she was, it, it helped her uh, mm. orgasm. And uh, the moment is horrifying in the movie. It's not a horrifying movie, but that moment I'm like, oh God, what a fucking bummer. But then I was watching this and I'm like, yeah, because remember there is the moment where she confronts him with the knives and he basically seduces her. <laughs> and Like hypnotizes uh, her. Yeah, and there's this sense in which the thing that she hates about him is part of the appeal. And I almost wonder if that's what's going on with the tattooed lady too. I don't know. He's so horrible that everybody wants him. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, there might be something to that. Uh, I want to finish off the uh, first uh, half of this film. Just asking if anyone has any final thoughts. Sticking with you, Liam, any final thoughts on the first half of the film? I mean, it's, it is a great setup and it is, it ends in such a horrifying way. Again, I, I'm not saying that all the other stuff that happens in the beginning part of the movie isn't grotesque in its own way, sure. but the moments it ends with are shot in such a way that really s speak of something horrible to me. And then that, as then the transition to the second half of the movie, I think really works because it speaks to what we're going to get. And then the second half begins in a way that feels more similar to the first half and then just slowly becomes more and more for me like a nightmare in a more direct way and a less... Uh, a less uh, whimsical way than some of his other stuff. Sure. Yeah, I think that's very fair. How about yourself, Julie? Any final thoughts on the first half of Santa Sangre? It's interesting because it really does kind of have this two-part feel to it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you, the first part is just the setup, right? Yeah. To get to second two, to tell you why. And I think, you know, for a lot of horror movies and a lot of killers, you either get an extensive backstory or you get no backstory, right? And I feel like even if Phoenix had no backstory, if we just come in on him, he's crazy in a mentalist style, and we don't know why, and he goes through that, like you really kind of don't even need the first half, but I love that we have it mm -hmm. because it explains so much about why he's doing what he's doing and to give you so much sympathy for him because you know that's what the first half is really about is you feeling sympathy for this poor character who has all these things going on when he's way too young for it. And mm -hmm. so you already have sympathy for him going into the second half where he's going to turn into this you know serial killer monster. Um, but I think, you know, I, I really think that it's cool that it's it's halved this way. And I like that we are talking about it this way. Um, yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> the second half of Santa Sangre uh, starts with Phoenix escaping from the uh, the psychiatric institution. But before he does that, 
he goes to a movie or was sorry i should say he's supposed to go to a movie with some of the other um people who are are, are um, in that psychiatric hospital uh, a group of people with down syndrome um and as you were suggesting liam it starts off that that feel, all of that material seems very Jodorowsky, and we even see one of Jodorowsky's uh, sons, Teo, as a pimp that intercepts them as they go to the uh, the movie theater. And then it, once he escapes from the psychiatric hospital proper, it's when it kind of really enters the second stage of the movie and the the series of murders that he commits, and him becoming the arms for his mother, uh, who he reunites with. Roger Ebert said of this film that he called it a horror film. One of the greatest, and after waiting patiently through countless dead teenager movies, I am reminded by Alejandro Jodorowsky that true psychic horror is possible on the screen. Horror, poetry, surrealism, psychological pain, and wicked humor all at once. He was a big fan of Santa Sangre, which he saw as genuinely, well, genuinely opposing evil as opposed to, you know, the movies that may celebrate it uh, that huh. were very popular at that time period. Well said, have, well said. Yeah, I think, I, again, the... Whatever you think about Ebert's uh, opinions on, on things, he was an unbelievable writer, especially when he was talking about something he either loved or hated. Um, one of the things I like most about Santa Sangre is how empathetic and non-judgmental it is in regards to outsiders, whether it be the people who are in the psychiatric hospital, whether it be Phoenix himself, who's been left traumatized and mentally ill from what he witnessed as a child. What are your thoughts, starting with you, Julia, on the adult character of Phoenix and Cristobal Jodorowsky's physicality? Uh, in his performance. Yeah, I know that you love looking at him, but what do you think of how he, because uh, he has to do so much, right? Uh, you know, he, yeah. he studied mime and so much of that is in right. the, the performance of, I mean, basically he has to be someone else's arms in this. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the adult character of Phoenix and his performance? I mean, he, you know, as, as, as Liam said earlier, just like just magic, right? He's just at this level that, and it's a shame that none of these Jodorowsky boys get any sort of, like the fact that Brontes didn't win something for Dance of Reality, like infuriated me. Infuri right. I was like, what the fuck? It feels like this. Like, how could this performance be unsung when it's one of the most incredible performances? Because like for the good first half of this half, he's kind of not there, right? He's kind of... Uh, trying to figure out the world there's a lot of him he's not talking uh, and, and you see him kind of emerging from this shell of mental illness um, and then you know have this turn into this incredibly suave him in that fucking magician outfit are you fucking <laughs> kidding me I'm so I took a fucking screenshot I was like damn though hi so you know and, and that kind of charming where you'd be like yeah i would like even though like like i would feel like the fucking um the pharmacist who was like hey can i come over and like even when he, <laughs> even when he even when he freaks out in the shop and she's like are you okay and he's like yeah and like you're like that's a pretty weird freak out but i'd still go over you know like that's the kind of thing about him like he becomes this very charming man and but the thing that's so appealing about him is he still has this childlike innocence in his eyes yes. where mm -hmm. he doesn't feel like he's menacing he feels very sweet and you can tell he's distracted because he has other things going on but you can like he feels like a very kind and genuine person which is what the how these cute boy killers work right if you yeah. look at norman bates before he turns crazy like he's so charming he's so adorable with this fucking fucking candy corn in his pocket are you kidding <laughs> like it's that kind of thing so i think it's so incredible that you get this performance going from uh, basically, he's just an animal in the beginning, right? And then he's it, it's becoming like, a man. It's almost like a Wolfman type performance, you know, where he mm -hmm. recognizes in himself that he that he has this 
evil compulsion and and hates it about himself, right? And but can't control it as well. I mean, even when he uh, seduces the wrestler later on, right? The idea is this is someone who can fight me off, so it's something I can be safe with. Just a really interesting. I mean, everything physical about that performance is so interesting. Liam, what did you think of, of the adult character of Phoenix and how Cristobal brings him to life? I've already mentioned a little bit, but I just think he's yeah. amazing. I mean, obviously, you know, when he starts off and he is mentally ill and he's trying to mimic the eagle, um, I when that first started, I thought, this is pretty good, but, you know, I'm a little iffy on it. And I thought it was funny later when he's like, he li- he lived with an eagle for two months. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know that that was necessary, my man. Like, <laughs> I think you could have got there without living in the in the hotel room with the eagle. But uh, once he starts being out in the world, it goes from pretty good to me, like a solid performance, to just unbelievable. Like I said, there are moments where I couldn't believe it was his hands and and that he's playing two different things he's committed to being her hands but then on his face he's fucking horrified he's so uncomfortable he wants to be anywhere else in the world than what he's doing it's unbelievable it is just a magical thing and and i don't think it gets enough attention because to Mm -hmm. me it is such a such a uh an impressive performance that that isn't just a good performance in of itself, but it serves the movie. So it, it accomplishes two things. It allows him to show us the scope of his talent and and to be amazing, but also it makes the movie work. You know, it's it's not him doing his own thing sure. and not serving the narrative. It it is one of the reasons the movie is so amazing. It's that sequence where she's just eating breakfast, which is such a simple idea right it's just oh yeah it's a woman eating breakfast but he's providing the arms while she does it i mean there's a lot of of really impressive sequences but to me it's the normalcy that makes it so impressive it's just like if you didn't know of course you would think that's just her arms because it's done just so incredibly well you know i was talking earlier about the idea that when jodorowsky tells stories sometimes you have to wonder if he's exaggerating and one of the stories he tells in the documentary is about a sequence late in the film where he is basically providing her arms and they have to walk together at the same time. And what he, as a director, suggested to make this easier, because they didn't have a lot of time to rehearse, is for him to basically squeeze his testicles while they were walking to keep him as closely aligned with her as possible. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, whatever, Jodorowsky, bullshit. And then it cuts to her. (laughs) It cuts to her and she confirms, like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I did. Nope. Like okay, I guess it's all true. Well, <laughs> like I mean, a... you would definitely follow anywhere she wanted you to go, wouldn't you? <laughs> it, it's the most Jodorowsky suggestion. I can't believe they all went along with it. And then watching it after hearing him say that, I'm like, yeah, I can kind of see what's going on here. But it's really like, how else? Where else would her arms go? Yeah, right? exactly. They have the she can't like cross them behind her back. You'd see her elbows. You can't put them on the inside of his thighs. You'd see that. There's nowhere else for them to go, really. Yeah, yeah, it's a. The, I do think that what people most remember about Santa Sangre is the idea of Phoenix providing the arms for his mother. Liam, you've already talked a little bit about, you know, your your the sequences that involve that. I want to stick with you, Julia. What's the most uh, memorable for you sequence where he provides arms for for Concha, his mother? Hmm. I think when they're doing the performance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's something that the his hand there's his hands are so well trained and it's something that and it's it's such an odd performance because they're supposed to be like at a burlesque club yeah, right? yeah, so yeah. Like what is sexy about what she's doing nothing like she's a beautiful lady and she's in a pretty dress and everything but 
the, the, like when the dancers come out behind her, it's just so surreal. I'm like, wait, what? It's so crazy. But you know, you're going from looking at these this artistic because I'm sure you've seen performances where someone's just doing something with their hands and it's mesmerizing, yeah. right? You're mm-hmm. like, it's just hands. How do you do that? But he's doing that. So to go from that to like crazy ladies shaking their booties, it just seems so out of place. And I think that he. You, you really feel he's an outsider, right? That he's never really been allowed to talk to people and really interact with people. And so he does still have this childlike innocence about him because he's not really been thrown into the real world because he's so sheltered. Even when he tries to form that relationship with that other performer in that sequence, he basically pretends to be his father, right? He dresses up Oh yeah, up we like go straight father. from them to the striptease. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. I do wonder a little bit about how much of that sequence is literal reality, right? Because if, if his mother isn't there, is it just him performing? Is it supposed to be oh. him doing that same performance by himself? But because... he has the puppet, right? He's yeah, yeah. the puppet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He has the puppet. So I guess... I guess that's what's happening there as well. It's a little, I, I don't know if it necessarily all makes literal sense, but then again, it's a Jodorowsky film. So what are you, what are you asking for? Liam, any other sequence involving the, uh, the arms that uh, stuck out to you? Oh, the piano sequence is yeah, for me the, the most incredible. But yeah, I, I'm going to say the, the back to your question, the puppet reveal solves it all, Doug. It's in fact, it's funny to me because it's the only Jodorowsky movie I've seen where there is a solution to anything. When they reveal the puppet, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, there you go. He answered a question. It's the, it's the you know, so many questions come up in these movies, and the question is the point. And the, the puppet reveal, I was like, well, there you go. I have an answer. Thank you. Uh, th- there we go. Because I think I think uh, I didn't need it. I'm more than willing to accept that there's something else going on, whatever. But seeing that puppet reinforces the idea that there's something real happening in his life. Right. That he's realizing Oh shit! It's been me the whole time, right? Right. And right. then you know the clowns aren't really there, but that doesn't fucking matter because and and the fact that uh, uh, that Alma's there, does she see the clouds? I don't know. Maybe she does. I don't. Is fucking she care. really there? Yeah, is she even really there? I don't know. But I I kind of believe it. You know, it's, like, it's, it's like, for him for her to show up looking exactly like the last time he saw her. Yeah. Like, like, eh, that's debatable, right? I feel right. like she's. Yeah. I feel like she's really there. But I mean, but then I, you think about what reality even means, right? In the first half of the movie, they do that funeral procession, and those clowns are what they have—the water squirting out of their eyes instead of mm-hmm. tears. It's already so surreal, and it's like—is that sure, in his memory yeah. or is that literal truth? Right. Speaking of weirdness, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a part in this movie where Alma—we haven't really talked about Alma. I actually think her performance as both a child and great. an adult, which, by the way, the adult performer was uh, was literally uh, deaf and mute, I believe. Uh, and yeah. in, in the interviews, it seemed to be the case and was communicated to via sign language. Uh, there's a part where she has escaped from the tattooed woman and she is encountering all sorts of grotesquerie on the streets of Mexico City, including a man who rips off his false ear and tries to it appears that he's trying to force it into her mouth. At the very least, he's trying to force himself upon her at a certain extent. I don't really necessarily want to get your thoughts on it. I just wanted to voice how fucking bizarre that is <laughs> and how it really much it very much is when you hear about how it came to be, where it was just like, oh, Jodorowsky found out that this person existed. and He's like, OK, this person has to be in my movie. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it means anything. I think it's really yeah. just that. He's just like, ooh, we could have a sequence. What does it mean? Who fucking knows? She's having <laughs> a bad night. You just kind of pass over it. It's And it's something that, as as Jodorowsky fans, uh, doesn't phase me. 
I'm no. just like, oh, okay. Like, no, it's not just at she, all. you know, he's going to, she's going to run into weird stuff. It could be anything. So it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem any weirder than anything else that happens. Like, that, but, but I, would, I will say she has poor choice of where to sleep because yeah. she climbs <laughs> yeah. it on top of a Mack truck. And I'm like, dude, if that suck starts, you're so fucked. Why on top of it? Why just not on the hood? I don't understand questions. Well, and that sequence when he mentions it in the documentary confirms a theory for, a, for that we've had, which is that sometimes he assigns meaning after the fact. Yeah. Because in the documentary, he straight up goes, "I don't know what that scene means. I've, I I can't figure it out. I was just I was directing from from my um, from my subconscious, and I don't know if there's any meaning to it." And I was like. Yeah, that's right. I, I he's, so pickled, his... he's so tickled by it too. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm directing my subconscious. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but I love, it. I love that he freely admits he's like, I don't know, I don't know why he does that. Like, that's that's really reassuring because I think sometimes he directs things, and then later on he goes, you know what I think was going on there, you know, and I <laughs> I appreciate that. I like that. I think that's really cool. I think that's amazing, but I think it also kind of like sticks a, a point to film criticism, right? Because it's something that it's always somebody's opinion about what something means. Sure. And sometimes the director doesn't even know. And he's like, I don't <laughs> fucking know what it means, right? So it's very like, well, whose opinion is real? Is there really a meaning to anything? That also Why reminds do we exist? me. Of I'm getting existential help. <laughs> It reminds me of that interview with the tattoo artist from the documentary where he's talking about how he would tease the production, all the crew, by saying, hey, you know, is, is are we doing the beach scene today? And they'd all lose their minds because they'd be like, what beach scene? Oh, my God. Because he was so unpredictable in what he might spring on them that they're terrified all the time because they don't know if they're prepared for it. But, I mean, that's that must be one of the most exciting things about working with Jodorowsky. Now, there is a sequence in this involving the murder of the tattooed woman where she is stabbed to death. And it's a very... Uh, intense, horrific sequence. It might be as close as Jodorowsky has been in terms of his direction of making kind of a straight-up horror sequence. And it, I mentioned in the in our notes here that it's almost Argento-like. And it's hard not to think of Argento because of Claudio's involvement with this. Uh, Dario Argento, I mean. But like even the lighting is very much like you would expect to see in a Dario Argento movie. Um, and, you know, Jodorowsky mentions that the original idea of this comes from the time of a uh, script uh, featuring a lot of women being murdered. What did you think of this sequence of the tattooed woman being murdered? Starting with you, Leah. I mean, it's incredibly well done as a as someone who watches a, a fair number of sequences along these lines. Sure, of um, course. It's incredibly well done. It immediately suggested to me that something was going on with the arm situation. Sure. You know? Mm -hmm. um, and it is... Uh, it's haunting. It, it is violent in all the ways that I think horror people are used to, but I also think it is very intense. And and in fact, um, sometimes some slasher movies will depict violence in a way that can almost feel silly. And sure. none none of that is present here. This is a very sort of sort of cruel depiction, um, but but effective for that. So I, I I was I was impressed by it, especially like. Because I don't know that that's necessarily the sort of thing that he's done much of, you know? Sure. Yeah. I think part of the reason I was thinking of Dario Argento while watching it was like, you don't see the killer. You just see the arm and the knife coming down. And uh, that is something that is echoed a lot in particularly his like giallo films and things like that. How about yourself, uh, Julia? What did you think of the uh, sequence where the tattooed woman is murdered? Yeah, it's kind of nice to see Jodorowsky dip into Giallo. It's 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 a yeah, cool yeah, it's a cool yeah. feeling, right? That that you and it's I feel like it's very obvious that's what he's doing. So I think mm -hmm. for you know film nerds like us, we're like oh yeah, like it's an Argento thing. We get it, right? But it is the Giallo thing, and I think Giallo usually 
the killer is some there's mental illness in there somewhere right sure i feel like that's very very common so um i think but it isn't really a sequence that sticks out to me in the movie when i think back on it like that's not a part of it that the you know him with his mother is so much more striking i guess sure yeah absolutely i think the brutality of it maybe just um just sticks out to me but also just the idea that it felt so much like the horror movie that you were right julia overall this movie is in no way a traditional horror movie and it's too way too surreal to be that but that sequence feels like it could come out of almost any slasher movie maybe an italian slasher movie from the late 70s and early 80s so it, it really it, it feels a little different than everything else i think um we we've already talked about it explicitly the ending of this film reveals that concha it was has been dead the entire time that she died when uh, when his father also died at the kind of midway point of the two sections and that everything that he's been experiencing in the film has been in his imagination involving a puppet even his you know his friend the uh, the dwarf character and the, and the clowns that are, are around him they're not actually really there um and i feel like this sort of ending where it was all in his head is such a cliche these days that if you were to explain this ending to someone, they'd be like, oh, okay, it's just one of those. But I have to say, the way that it works in this film and how devastated he is by that reveal, it might work in this film better than almost any other reveal of a similar form. It doesn't feel like it's an attempt to trick the audience. I think that's a real big part of it. It's just supposed to be an extension of the sympathy that we already have for this character. I want to get your thoughts, starting with you, Julia. What did you think of the ending of Santa Sangre? I honestly think it's a happy ending yeah. because mm -hmm. Phoenix is free and the joy on his face at the end that he, is, he finally has control of his hands again and he's finally sane again. And, you know, and this is the thing, like, is he cured in a way, right? We're talking about this thing with a serial killer. Um, is this something where he's better now, where he now is just himself so i feel like this movie like watching his face at the end actually makes me really happy i'm like oh he's finally free phoenix is free i feel so happy about that and so it doesn't feel like a, a normal ending where like the killer has been caught you know sure yeah no i agree 100 percent. i do think there's there's an interpretation of this that it is you know the 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 evil has been banished but the evil is the evil in his own brain to a certain extent right um i do worry about the aftermath of it you know, this reminds me a little bit. There was an incident here in Canada, boy, it must have been over a decade ago now, that involved a Greyhound bus. You may have heard about it in the United States as well, where a gentleman who was on a Greyhound bus was sitting next to someone, and he freaked out, and he murdered the person next to him and mutilated his body. And it was just a very horrific thing that was all over the news here. And it was revealed afterwards that the person who was the killer was schizophrenic, mentally ill, had never been violent in the past. And he went, instead of going to jail, went to an insane asylum, uh, got the medication, the therapy he needed, and was eventually both released on, you know, on, in a limited form and then fully released. And there was a lot of outcry in this country because I don't think in a lot of cases when it comes to mental illness, people, maybe it's because they've been poisoned by a lot of these movies, which suggests that people just use this as a way to get out of punishment. But that, that there is the possibility of real, um, 
a real redemption from it, that there's a possibility that mental illness is something that can be tamed or cured. But I think this movie is very sympathetic to the idea of mental illness and that the ending is something that's very positive, though I also worry that what that the immediate aftermath is that he is locked away in a prison cell for the next 30 years yeah. uh, and never gets to really appreciate the freedom that he's now found. But he has himself. his moment. Just he needs yeah. that one moment of freedom. And now that's everything's worthwhile. Liam, what was your interpretation and uh, and what did you think of the ending of Santa Sangre? I mean, I love it. I think when when later when uh, we found out sort of what the goal of the movie was, it accomplishes exactly what it is, which is this, you know, both of the founding stories are related to this idea that you could portray a killer whose circumstances and mental health made them so sympathetic that you wanted them to at least feel healing. Like, again, he's probably going to at least go to an asylum, if not to jail. Right. Like the, the victory we experience is simply his freedom, right. but they accomplish it. I feel entirely sympathetic towards him that he needs this change and no part of me. And, and, you know, I was thinking about what you're saying, Doug, I, I could, I heard a voice in my head while I was watching this ending saying, yeah, but what about all these people he killed? And, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to completely disregard the idea that, like, well, you know, a lot of people suffered, blah, 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 blah. Sure. But there's a part of me that also thinks, like, we have to deal with the reality of mental health, you know, like, and 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 a variety of things, right? Like, you know, famously the the uh, the shooter in Austin back in the day had a had a brain tumor that altered his personality. Like, there are so many things that could happen that could cause someone to do something horrific, and there's an underlying logic to punishment that we never really vocalize, which right. is like, uh, you know, if, if punishment is only suffering, what is it for? You know, if the idea is like you've harmed people and now you have to correct that harm, there's very little in actual punishment that involves correcting harm. It's just like this feeling we have that if there was suffering, there must be more suffering. And, you know, in the case of someone who's dealing with mental health, I think that logic kind of breaks down a little bit. Yeah. And we have mm -hmm. to ask, like, OK, so let's say he's killed. You know, what does that accomplish exactly? It doesn't bring anyone back to life. It doesn't solve anything. It might make someone feel better, but a lot of times it doesn't make people feel better. So, you know, I, I just think there's, there's, I don't know that there's like a bigger social claim here or anything like that, but I think the idea that like we could at least feel sympathy for this person who's been freed from their own, um, um, uh, mental health prison, you know, that they've living in this, this, uh, this world where they don't have any autonomy, they're being controlled by this, this other force. I think there's just something about that that is meaningful. Um, even if there's some aspect of us that maybe wonders about the quote unquote justice of it all, whatever right. we mean by that, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, the definition of justice, I think, is an interesting one, though not one that this movie really wants to tangle. No, with it's not concerned with that. It's not really yeah. what the movie's about, you know. Uh, any final thoughts, Liam, on the film Santa Sangre? Uh, anything that we haven't mentioned so far that you want to bring up? Um, that's a good question. I I, I think that um, uh, it's possible to say that maybe we wanted more of Alma. Like I just think that 
this it's not her story but you and we do get a chunk of her but sure. towards the end i i agree with some of what julia was saying about is is she even there you know just in her appearance and everything maybe she's not even present at the end it's just the sure. idea of her um and and i you know there's some part of me that kind of wishes there was a little bit more of her in the film but it's a minor thought overall i think this movie's basically a masterpiece like i just think it's amazing and you know i think because when i first discovered yodorowsky i was so enamored of uh the utter surreal mindfuck that is holy mountain that this movie maybe it has a little bit less of that but if you i don't know i i don't think that's actually a negative i think it 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 has a a lot more surreal to it than you know I, i i thought when I first watched it but also I think the balance it strikes is incredibly powerful and really like is affecting as a film you know and so I don't know I I, uh, I think a lot of people love it I don't think we're you know going against the grain by saying it's sure. an amazing movie sure, sure. but maybe for the few people uh, listening who haven't given it a chance or, or maybe haven't thought about it in, in certain ways I think there's a lot there to ponder um, even as much as there is in some of his more abstract films it's also a much more polished film than the ones that we've yes, watched so I agree. far, right? I mean, the production is, uh, I mean, the cinematography is absolutely beautiful. The soundtrack is unbelievable. I mean, there's a lot of elements that we've seen with very striking images, but this is a movie that feels like a movie from 1989 to a certain extent, even though it was on a very low budget. Some of the cinematography is unbelievable, but then again, uh, yeah, that's pretty great. consistent in uh, in Jodorowsky's work as well. Over to you, Julia. Any final thoughts on Santa Sangre? Anything we did not bring up so far? Just watch it if you haven't. It's fucking genius. I love it. And I think that it's a beautiful piece of cinema. And, um, you know, for me, Jodorowsky, when you say the words art, art, art cinema, this is what I think of, you know, and so like, this is something if, if that's interesting to you, where you take a film that you can kind of go to the left just a little bit and be a little bit weirder and a little bit more surreal and go in a different direction. Uh, this is a fantastic film. Simon Boswell, who does some of the music for the film, uh, and, and a very well-respected composer, you know, he did the music for Shallow Grave and Dust Devil and The Crying Game. I mean, really someone who's worked on a lot of, of big projects. He said in the uh, documentary that this is the only real piece of art that he considers mm-hmm. that he's worked on, right? And I think that that's, this is something that really transcends, and in a way that only Jodorowsky's films sometimes seem to be able to transcend. Agreed. The, going back to what you said earlier, Julia, it's not really a horror movie. It's a Jodorowsky movie, you know? <laughs> Somehow you can't really define it in, in uh, as broad a terms as we're used to in terms of, of genre. And uh, But I do think that it's a little bit easier to um, hang with than, than The Holy Mountain and El Topo can be, which, you know, if, you're not, if, if that surrealism, that level is so high on those other films that some people might find themselves frustrated with it, I think this is the kind of movie that finds a really perfect balance that alleviates a lot of that. And if you've seen this movie and haven't seen El Topo and the Holy Mountain, it, they, they still might be difficult, but this would probably ease you into it a little bit more. Now, I do want to talk briefly about the documentary Forget Everything You Have Ever Seen, The World of Santa Sangre from 2011, directed by David Gregory, uh, one of the co-founders of Severn Films, the uh, boutique Blu-ray and DVD label, and uh, formerly was a founder of Blue Underground, which is also one of those labels. These days, he directs mostly the special features for these DVDs and Blu-rays, which is what this started as. This is a documentary that was meant as a special feature for the 2011 release of Santa Sangre, even though it is feature-length. 
uh, David Gregory also uh, was is a producer of a number of films, including the recent Color Out of Space and the upcoming Birdemic Three. Want to get everyone's kind of general thoughts? I, it, it it is a um, beautifully put together documentary. They they were able to interview most of the major people involved, including a lengthy, obviously, interview with Jodorowsky, which is absolutely fascinating. As uh, as someone who is a huge fan, obviously, of Jodorowsky's doing that documentary. This makes for an, a really wonderful kind of uh, um, uh, something, a complimentary film to watch with it. If you have, were fascinated by Jodorowsky's Dune, I'd actually suggest that this is a must-watch if you want to see more of Jodorowsky sort of in his element talking about his films. Uh, starting with you, Liam, what were your thoughts on uh, on Jodorowsky and the making of Santa Sangre? I thought it was really great because uh, not only did it give us a lot of context and a variety of people involved with the production to hear from, it never made the mistake of just picking a difficult sequence and then saying, okay, tell us what this means. Which yes, is like right, right, right. The, probably the, the danger that you would have interviewing Jodorowsky is, is demanding meaning or clarification. And not that he wouldn't give it. But it wouldn't help necessarily in a lot of times. Um, and so, like, you know, I, I like that it really deepened uh, my understanding of the film and gave me a lot of cool context. Uh, but it also let the film be what what it is, you know. And, and I thought that was really interesting. Plus, it as you as we've sort of alluded to, but I want to reiterate, it gave us an opportunity to have other people corroborate Jodorowsky stories. <laughs> yeah. There's so many great Jodorowsky stories that we hear in various interviews uh, great and horrifying, depending on the story, that we don't get context for. We don't know how real it is, and we don't know how much myth-making is going on. And the number of times here where people were like, oh, yeah, this happened, was like really interesting and, and for me and really helped me understand him a little bit more. You know, I, we've mentioned Frank Povich, who we've interviewed on this show before, the director of Jodorowsky's Dune. Woo-hoo. I found out just yesterday that Frank did not know that this documentary existed. When I, said, when I said that I was watching it, he did he had not heard of it before. So uh, I, I'd love to get his thoughts on it as well. Um, and uh, I, I'm glad that you brought up uh, the idea of the corroboration. The other thing that I really love about this is the interviews with Jodorowsky's children, particularly because yeah. this was such a both an, an important and unique experience for them acting in one of their father's films at the time. But also it was... It seemed like it was incredibly intense, particularly when it comes to Cristobal and how it, it almost damaged their relationship beyond repair. Uh, they weren't even talking to each other at one point during the making of the movie. It, it it just it really I'm glad they included that because it doesn't reflect necessarily entirely positively on Alejandro Jodorowsky as an artist. But it also shows that this is a family that is very strong, that they have that communication and that in retrospect, this is almost an amusing story, even though it must have been absolutely crushing at the time. Julia, what were your thoughts on the documentary as a whole? I think what you're talking about is exactly what I liked about it, is that mm-hmm. to hear, to see uh, Aiden and Cristobal talking about the making of it and a lot of the stories they tell, yeah, don't sound fun, right? Uh, I think, you know, the one where Aiden talks about um, Alejandro slapping him telling him that he had to be good in the movie yeah. uh, and then he gets his revenge later and tells his dad <laughs> like it is i think that probably alejandro didn't even remember it right like it was nothing to him but to aiden's like he's never been hit before and here was this thing and so he got to get his revenge and got to hit him back and i was like that's that feels very jodorowsky family to me and it's just like it's like it's very eh. but i think that what's fascinating to me about his children is you know with the as we can all imagine incredibly intense upbringing they had I feel like you either it either really makes you like a, a very 
good artist and it really makes you kind of understand the world or it breaks you. And as far as I can tell, like all of his children seem to be doing really well and like yeah. have really followed in their father's footsteps in different ways. You know, Brontus does a lot of theater and he does a lot of movies. And then you have Aiden who's doing all of his music stuff. Um, and Cristobal was in a documentary and like they're doing all these different things, but they feel like branches of Jodorowsky in a way. So you feel like he's influenced them ultimately in a positive way because they're using his art to further more art. Yes, absolutely, and and I, I I said it I think off of uh, off mic, but they're because they look like Jodorowsky at different <laughs> stages of his life. It is very interesting just how much, especially as as like older gentlemen, even though these interviews are from a decade ago, how much they kind of reflect his view on life. Even though Aiden is like very soft spoken and you know he's speaking English, and Cristobal is a little bit more. Um, overtly artistic, where he talks about his his experience with mime and living in the uh, hotel room with the eagle. It's just it's just interesting to hear everyone's perspective. I also wanted to bring up the interview with Telma Teo, who played the tattooed woman in the movie. She had such a fascinating life as a sort of burlesque theatrical performer, uh, who then you know I guess she was abused later in her life by her husband. And but her, I, I find her interview in this sort of heartbreaking even though it's it's also like a very much a celebration of her as a person but just the idea that you know she's older and recognizes it she has such fond memories of being part of this film i think she really loves the idea that this is part of her legacy but there's also that wonderful moment where she tries to recreate the the stretching exercise that she did in the movie proper and this is a woman you know I, she must have been in her 60s if not her early 70s and still doing this a really amazing thing and it it really kind of puts a point a kind of a fine point on the idea that it that documentaries like this are so essential for capturing these sort of historical uh, uh moments these these interviews are so important for capturing the history of something like a movie like this where if these stories were not documented and written down or filmed and recorded that we would never know all of these amazing things that happened and there'd be no record and maybe i'd still in my brain think that jodorowsky's just making up a lot of this stuff like the grabbing of the testicles i just think it's a really terrific documentary and it covers basically everything i wanted to know Without, as you said, Liam, without exp over explaining things that it removes any of the mystery from it. it. It is very, very much worth going out of your way to see. Uh, any final thoughts from either of you on uh, the documentary? Uh, forget everything you have seen, starting with uh, with you, Liam. I just would say check it out if you're a fan of Yodorowsky. I think it's really well done, really interesting, and was entertaining the whole way through. Yeah, very much so. Uh, for for a lengthy documentary as, as well, it's it's currently in the United States streaming on the Tubi streaming service with ads uh, for free. If that is something that you want to go with, but you can also get it on both the 2011 Severin Blu-ray release as well as the recent 4K one. Uh, also includes the documentary as well. Uh, how about you, Julia? Any final thoughts on Forget Everything You Have Ever Seen? Uh, I did like the reveal that the tattoos on the tattoo lady were just big pens and food color. Yes, absolutely. So, but that also she couldn't shower for weeks because they would wash it all off. <laughs> I was like, oh no, that sounds uh, horrifying and yet amazing. Uh, I thought it was really fun. I mean, I want to know all there is to know about Jodorowsky. So if you're of a similar ilk, give it a watch. Yeah, yeah. And as I said before, if you saw Jodorowsky's Dune and was like, this guy's so fascinating, I want to hear more of what he has to say. Yeah, this I'll is watch him talk all day long. Absolutely. And this is a, a great kind of, of, of second act for that sort of thing. 
And that was 1989's Santa Sangre. But before we finish up with the movie entirely, I want to ask both of you. Now, this is a little unfair, and I get it. It's something that you kind of talked about a little bit earlier, Liam. In terms of the movies we've watched so far, Fondo Elise, The Holy Mountain, El Topo, Tusk, and now uh, Santa Sangre, what would be your top three Jodorowsky films? Knowing that there's more to come, uh, including some truly great ones. Starting with you, Julia, tell us your top three Jodorowsky films of what we've watched so far for this podcast. Number one, Holy Mountain. Number two, El Topo. Number three, Santa Sangre. But as I mentioned, we got two coming up that will be on my top five. Uh, so, and I think I think they're of equal of equal genius. I know that says a lot. So uh, that's how. But so that doesn't mean that Santa Sangre is like to put it three makes it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. It. It. it I do feel like El Topo and the Holy Mountain are more distilled Jodorowsky, right? They're more pure in terms yeah. of... <laughs> Give me all the like hardcore Jodorowsky. <laughs> uh, and I wonder if one of the movies you're talking about is going to include the film that we're going to cover on our most our, on our next episode, but we'll see about that in just a little bit. <laughs> Liam, top three Jodorowsky, give it to us. I think I still got to go Holy Mountain number one, but I actually think uh, Santa Sangre is coming pretty close. Ooh. Coming very close to it. And then El Topo after that. Um, yeah, there's just something about this movie that I really clicked with, um, on this rewatch. And I maybe just have a deeper appreciation of it now that we've been talking so much about Jodorowsky. Whereas the first time I saw it, I liked it, but I was sad that it wasn't Holy Mountain. (laughs) I'm still perplexed uh... how he went from Holy Mountain to Tusk to this. I mean, in the documentary, he said, I just wanted to ride an elephant. I know. I love that. (laughs) Like... It like blows my mind. I'm like, how is it the same filmmaker? I don't understand. That part at the very end of the documentary where he talks about how he hasn't really made any money from any of his films and that it's really about when he feels the passion to make a movie, he makes a movie. And that, you know, it, it, I think that's a little simplistic because, you know, a lot of things had to align to allow him to make this movie. Um, but, but I think Tusk, you could see his disappointment whenever he talks about it, right? For for him, that is not a movie that he has any personal connection with outside of wanting to ride an elephant. But this one, there is something personal there. But in terms of that, in terms of movies that he were, has, dis, has disappointed him and that he has disowned, one of them is very famous with Tusk. The other one is also famous, but maybe for another reason. He followed up the very next year. He followed up Santa Sangre with 1990's The Rainbow Thief, starring Peter O'Toole, Omar Sharif and Christopher Lee. This by far the the kind of biggest and most mainstream film that Jodorowsky ever made. And yet it's a movie that's almost never talked about. And it's a movie, as I said, has been disowned by the director himself. And it's a movie I've never seen. Actually, uh, coincidentally enough, this also was just recently uh, added to Tubi, though I don't know what kind of uh, how that version looks. And I would uh, suggest uh, trying to find a version that does not have commercials if you are uh, going to be seeking it out. But yes, uh, Jodorowsky's sixth feature film wasn't released in uh, in the UK, I believe, until 1994. Uh, and it's a movie that he does not have strong positive feelings for whatsoever. Jesus. But I have to say, I'm fascinated to think I'm of Jodorowsky... Fucking... Terrified. <laughs> it's it is it's kind of scary to think it's like what you're talking. Yeah, you please. want it to be good. You want him to be always want him to be good, right? And you're like, if he disowned it, it's got to be bad. You've shown me two posters, and both of them make me cringe so yeah. hard. And I'm like, I don't want to see. I mean, I love all of the actors in the movie, but I don't want to see Jodorowsky directing stars. It feels wrong. 
Yeah, it does. It feels unusual. It feels very much at odds of what we've seen so far. But also, I have to say, I'm so curious. I'm so curious about the Rainbow Thief. I guess for me, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, what if we watch it and we, we're all like, oh, my God, it's actually amazing. It's really underrated and people are not talking about it. But there's also that other part of my mind that's like, oh, boy, there's a reason that he has not connected his name to the Rainbow Thief over the past 30 so years. Uh, but on the next episode of Jodowowski, 1990s, The Rainbow Thief. Uh, Liam, are you excited to check out The Rainbow Thief? I Yes, I'm going to say yes, even though there's a part of me that's also afraid. <laughs> well, we'll see if those fears are well well met on the next episode. Uh, Julia, how wonderful it is to be able to spend time with you talking about Jodorowsky or any other subject. Uh, where can people find your work online and what have you been up to lately? Uh, you can find me online at Julia C. Marchesi. I'm on all of the things and I'm always <laughs> there talking about movies. So if you want to come chat with me about movies, I am all about it. I have another podcast, Horror Movie Survival Guide, that you can check out as well. We did a crossover episode where I got to interview Liam and Doug, which was very, very mm -hmm. fun. So you can check that out. Um, uh, my Stephen King short, I Know What You Need, is like oh, almost done. It's very at the squeaky, squeaky little last end. Uh, and then film festivals are coming up right after that all right well i'm looking forward to hearing more about that i try not to pry because i know how hard you've been working on it and i imagine people are on you all the time it's like when are we going to see it well, well it's just you it. know <laughs> i know when it's done and i'm a very like the world never moves fast enough for me so sure. i'm always like okay cool, let's go let's go let's go but it's like that's not how filmmaking works man like it takes time and so it just i would like it to be done but it is almost done and so it's that anxiety of like okay like let's wrap it up <laughs> Well, it'll be it'll be out in the world soon enough, and hopefully people will be able to check it out before too long. Liam, where can people find out your work online, and what have you been up to? Ooh, that's a great question, Doug. <laughs> um, obviously, everyone can head over to cinepunks.com to check out not just this podcast, but you know a whole family of podcasts that we have going on there, including two that I'm on, Cinepunks, the main podcast, and Horror Business. Uh, but we also have Twitch of the Death Nerve, The Carnage Report, um, all kinds of fun stuff over there. Uh, and, you know, some writing uh, as well. Um, as far as uh, me, I'd love for people to go to uh, roughcutfanclub.com and just check out whatever drops we have going on over there as well. There's usually new stuff going on uh, pretty regularly. Um, you can also find us on Instagram, roughcutfanclub, where we post all of our new designs. If you want to check out the entire archive of Jodowowski episodes, go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com, where we have uh, both Jodowowski and not both, not only Jodowowski, but all sorts of different podcasts devoted to the filmographies of directors, actors. You can check those all out, including ones devoted to Jackie Chan, Carol Kane, Paul Bartel, et cetera, et cetera. But you can check Dick that Miller. out over at Cinema. And Dick Miller as well at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. If you want to check out Liam on Twitter, he's there at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And you can follow me on Twitter at Doug underscore Chili. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. But for now, we need to take a little break. We are all researched out when it comes to Santa Sangre. I think there's a lot less material out there for the uh, film that's going to be featured on our next episode, The Rainbow Thief from 1990. But we'll talk about that very soon. Good night, everyone.